Syphilis rates are soaring in America, and if you're thinking syphilis, that sounds like a problem from the 1940s, you'd be right. Syphilis is the sniper, the saboteur behind the lines. But it strikes not in the field, not in the camps, but in the towns. That is where syphilis must be fought. That was a public service announcement in 1942. And while rates are as high as they were back then, a new report from the CDC shows that syphilis is, in fact, increasing in nearly every demographic and every region of the U.S. Over 200,000 cases of syphilis were reported in 2022. That's up 80 percent from 2018. But that's not all. Nearly 4,000 cases of congenital syphilis was found amongst newborns in 2022. That's 10 times higher than it was the previous decade. So what's causing this disturbing trend? And what's the best way to prevent it? NBC News medical fellow Dr. Akshay Sayal joins us now. Dr. Sayal, thank you so much for joining us. What is happening? It's it doesn't need to be happening, Aaron, and that's kind of what's what's surprising a lot of people here, right? So we're seeing these rates of syphilis rise like they did many decades ago, and we think there's a few reasons behind this. Um, you know, one of is increasing uh, substance use. You know, things like alcohol and marijuana are linked to more risky sexual behavior, so that may be driving that increase in sexual behavior. Um, but otherwise, Aaron, we're also seeing decreased condom use. High school students over the last decade, eight percent less likely to use condoms, and um, we're also seeing at the state and local federal level uh, decrease funding for sexual STI clinics, essentially clinics where you go to get tested for these things. And that's important, Aaron, because a lot of these things don't have symptoms. Um, so really the only way to pick them up in the early stages is to get tested regularly. And if you're not doing that, then you can't really get treated for it. Okay, so syphilis is an STI, but that is not the only way you can get syphilis? Which is a good question. So syphilis you won't get, you know, if, if, you, if you had syphilis and you touched the doorknob and I touched the doorknob, you wouldn't get syphilis that way, Aaron. But it's, there is a big way you can get it, and that's uh, pregnant women. Uh, pregnant women can actually pass this on to their babies. And that's why there's, a, as you pointed out, a really, really large increase in congenital syphilis. What might be happening is those pregnant uh, people who are pregnant aren't getting tested and aren't getting treated for syphilis and then passing it on to their, to their newborns. So what can pregnant women do? to prevent this and what can people do to prevent this? So this is, this just to clarify, this is a very treatable, it's a curable disease, Aaron, with, with antibiotics. And so if you are somebody who's pregnant, make sure you're going to those, those visits, those prenatal visits. Everybody should be tested for syphilis at least once in their pregnancy, some people even more. And if you do test positive, you can treat it, you can get rid of it, so that way you don't pass it on to your newborn. And let's talk about the symptoms, what are they? So the symptoms for syphilis, you know, it's called a great imitator in medicine because the, sim the symptoms can really just vary. And, and Aaron, you know, it depends on what stages you're in. There's, there's early stages and there's late stage syphilis. So the early stages can look like, you know, rashes or sores in your, in your genital and private areas. But Aaron, as you get on to those later stages, if you don't catch it and you don't treat it, it can start to affect your heart. It can affect your brain. You can start to get, you know, symptoms 10 to 30 years down the line from the infection. So you know, if you, if you are not having, if you're not sure if you, you're having symptoms for this, just make sure that if you are somebody who's maybe in the uh, high-risk sexual, sexual behavior, like, uh, for example, gay and, and uh, bisexual men, you are getting tested for this because there may not always be such obvious symptoms. Lots of good information there, Dr. Sial. Thank you. Appreciate it. Anytime. When you don't vote, you can't sit on a jury. You have no right to complain about the police because you won't even go and vote so you can even sit on a jury. Uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first started to call in, I spent 11 years on a job where, where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched... 
black people going to jail, black people have white having white probation officers, and the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy. And a great deal of it is could have some of it could be lessened if black people simply voted. President Biden is back in South Carolina this weekend. It was a state that turned around his struggling campaign four years ago. This time around, South Carolina's holding the first official Democratic primary in the nation this coming Saturday. Biden's the clear favorite, but he's facing a much tougher fight against the likely Republican nominee, Donald Trump, in the fall. So the president made a stop last night at a dinner held by the state Democratic Party. I wouldn't be here without the Democratic voters of South Carolina, and that's a fact. So I want to start with a very simple message. From the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. One of the dinner guests was Margie Bright Matthews, a South Carolina state senator who represents an area west of Charleston. We talked to her earlier in the week and asked her why Biden is visiting the state. There is a lot of unrest in the Democratic Party as well as the um, Republican Party about both presumptive winners of each party. I'm worried in South Carolina that the message of all the good things Biden has done has not been explained to people loud enough so that they would see the distinct difference in what he brings and what he's done. President Obama was wonderful in articulating every time he accomplished something. He had wonderful press conferences. President Biden, he has a different style. I appreciate it in some regards, but he has put his head down. He's been working. I. It's important that he be here in South Carolina to tell the people about what he's done to lower the cost of their insulin, what he's done regarding our infrastructure and broadband. So, so you know, clearly you support uh, President Biden. What does he need to say and do to get South Carolina, people in South Carolina, to go out and vote for him? Well, first of all, I think the most important thing that he has to try to say is bring up the gun laws because he needs to articulate a message to our young black men and minorities, really, what has happened regarding guns and he needs to articulate that if they do not come out and vote and turn out in masses for him, America's going to be rolled back. He needs to be able to explain what he has done regarding the economy, what he's trying to do to give them a path to buying their own home and creating generational wealth. The older folks who I believe that they have shown up to vote over and over again. They remember what it was like in the 60s and the 70s. But I think some of the younger parts of our population don't necessarily see that America could lose its true values of democracy under Donald Trump. What what do you think? I mean, a, a number of national polls have shown that support for Biden has fallen quite a bit among black voters. What do you think is behind um, the, the, the discontent that some black voters seem to have when it comes to uh, President Biden? I don't think it's necessarily discontent. I just think 
it's a factor of not being excited. That's some of what Obama had to face in his second term because of some of that nonchalance, I would think, and expecting that he's going to win. They just seem to not necessarily be excited or concerned about the fact that he could potentially not win. What do you say to those uh, younger Black people who may say Democrats have taken the votes of Black people for granted and that they have not done enough um, with the votes that Black people have given them? What I've always said to them is if you think that is a problem, come in, be active in the Democratic Party and be a part of the solution. And I also say to them, do you think it is better in the Republican Party? With their gun laws and with stricter criminal penalties for everything that is a non-white collar crime, do you think the Republican Party is your answer? No. Now let's talk about abortion. Last year, you and four other state senators won the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award for blocking an abortion ban in the state legislature. Has Biden been campaigning enough on his support for abortion rights? That's an easy one, Aisha. Absolutely not. I wish they would talk a whole lot more about this abortion issue. If they make that an issue in this election, the Democrats win. And that's a way you also get those younger voters involved, as well as women from all avenues. I think that's the way you get independents involved. And I wish they would not shy away from that. That's South Carolina State Senator Margie Bright Matthews. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I mean, you got white men sailing around, I mean, in space right now as we talk. And, uh, yeah, hooking up all kinds of stuff, I mean, to, you know, to tap into people's telephones and all that. You know I mean, they're, they're always up to something. On a grand scale. This week, Elon Musk announced that his company, Neuralink, implanted a chip into a human brain for the first time ever. The chip is supposed to give people the ability to control devices using brainwaves, which sounds kind of scary. And there's a lot of concern that this technology, if it works, would create access to the thoughts in people's heads. Chile enshrined neuro rights into its constitution two years ago. It's part of a similar effort across Latin America. And now at least two U.S. states are considering legislation to that effect to protect those private thoughts. Rafael Yuste has been a part of those efforts. He's a professor of biological sciences and neuroscience at Columbia University. He also co-founded the Neuro Rights Foundation. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program. Hi, good morning, everyone. So let's start with the basics. What are neuro rights? Okay, so neuro rights are new human rights to protect brain activity and brain data, brain information. And uh, the reason uh, this has to be protected is because for the first time in history, we have the technology, neurotechnology, that allows us to map the activity of the brain and the neurons in the brain to decipher it and also to alter it. So this is the first time that we can get uh, with that technology, which are brain chips or optical technology or magnetic, into the brains of people. Okay, so but in layman's terms, does this mean people could read your thoughts, change the way you think? I mean, what could this do? Um, down the line, that would be possible. In fact, this is possible 
already with uh, patients. Uh, there's uh, new technology has been pioneered in the lab and in the clinic to help patients that have, uh, for instance, paralysis. No? And you can implant uh, chip in the brain and uh, use that chip as a brain-computer interface to connect the person's brain to a computer or to robotic arms and uh, that way uh, interpret the thoughts. Mm. And this has also been done to decode speech in language in, in people that are paralyzed and cannot speak and through neurotechnology they can communicate with the outside. Mm. So it sounds like there are really positive opportunities with this type of technology, but also if used in the wrong way, it sounds like it could be quite uh, invasive. Yeah, I mean, just like every other technology that the humans have invented, starting with the fire, you can always use it for good or for bad. No? And new technology is the same, no? so it's neutral. And obviously people like us were developing it for scientific and medical reasons. No, I'm originally an MD, no, and we have to we have the urgency to help all these patients. Who among your audience doesn't have family members or friends that suffer from uh, some devastating brain disease? No, but these same methods that are allow us to go into the brain of a paralyzed person and have her talk to us. No can be used to decode the thoughts of, of someone who, who's not paralyzed or, or decode images or, or get into the sensi sensitive data. Um, just really quickly, I know your foundation has helped to shape legislation in ways to protect neuroprivacy. I mean, are there any federal protections for neuroprivacy and what types of protections do there need to be? Yeah. So if the neurotechnology is used in the clinic, then... Uh, we're good. It's protected by HIPAA. It's protected by. It's uh, allowed by the FDA. No, so uh, they fall within the the realm of medical technology, and brain data is treated as sensitive. Rafael Uste is a professor of biological sciences at Columbia University and a co-founder of the NeuroRights Foundation. Thank you for your time. Man, you see this Mark Zuckerberg building this two hundred and seventy million dollar bunker? If you have a billion dollars, we have learned that you can do whatever you want to do. When Elon Musk wants to send space things in space, he don't have to ask nobody's permission. Congress don't meet. Senate don't meet. No police department got to be warned. He don't need a permit. None of that. If you got a billion dollars, you do what you want to do, and then you tell them what you did. Elsewhere, the bosses of five major tech firms, they've been testifying at a Senate hearing about what they're doing to protect children from online sexual exploitation. Well, the five have faced some pretty fiery questions today, with Metaboss Mark Zuckerberg being asked, what the hell were you thinking, over an Instagram prompt that directed users to possible child abuse material. Well, Mr Zuckerberg and the boss of TikTok, they voluntarily agreed to testify, but the others, the other three, the bosses of Snap, X, formerly Twitter, of course, and Discord, they initially refused. They were sent subpoenas forcing them to appear all have hundreds of millions of young users, of course. Now, senators are particularly worried about a rise in reports of explicit images of children being shared, including those created with artificial intelligence. Well, in his opening remarks, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's the top Republican on the committee, took aim at Facebook founder and chief executive Mark Zuckerberg. Mr Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product, you have a product that's killing people. And I use it, we all use it. There's an upside to everything here, but the dark side hasn't been dealt with. It's now time to deal with the dark side because people have taken your idea 
and they've turned it into a nightmare for the American people. They've turned it into a nightmare for the world at large. Well, you heard some of the applause there. Uh, Kristen Bride is a social media reform advocate. Her son, Carson, committed suicide after being a victim of anonymous cyberbullying. Now, before the hearing, she said social media companies were more concerned with profit than safety. We're looking for accountability from these social media companies to actually follow through with what they say that they're going to do. We're going to hear a lot of promises today and a lot of, then we also see broken promises. So what did we hear from the firms themselves? Here's one of the responses. This one from Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg in his opening remarks. I'm sorry for everything that you have all gone through. It's terrible. No one should have to go through the things that your families have, have suffered. And this is why we invest so much and are going to continue doing industry-leading efforts to, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. Let's take you now live to our North America correspondent, Nomia Iqbal, who's in Washington. And Nomia, that moment that we just played there, Mark Zuckerberg uh, addressing some of the families in the room, it was a really powerful moment, but one he was directed to make, wasn't he? That's right. Uh, he was really grilled by the Republican Senator Josh Hawley, who prompted him to get up and look at the families. And Ben, there were loads of takeaway moments in, in the hearing. But I think for me, certainly it was the presence of the families. Uh, they, these are people who say that they have lost their children to social media. And right from the beginning, their presence was felt. They were a real force to be reckoned with. So when the CEOs entered, they were hissing at them. Throughout their testimonies, they would laugh and applaud the senators. And it, in some ways, I think it fueled the sort of combative energy that we saw. It fueled that tension between lawmakers and the CEOs, Mark Zuckerberg and the head of TikTok, particularly uh, coming in for the most scrutiny. And um, that then led to that dramatic moment that you just played there of Mark Zuckerberg turning around and saying to those families, I apologize for your suffering, but also explaining what, what Meta was doing to try and make the platform safer. And that was what all the CEOs were here to do, to try and defend themselves and, and explain to lawmakers what measures they were taking to keep children safe whilst also empowering children and parents but for lawmakers it just wasn't good enough they want these ceos to endorse key bills that they want to pass through congress yeah and nomia it is a familiar allegation and we heard it once again there from a family member who had lost a son to suicide um that familiar refrain that these firms are putting profit before safety and once again, some of the, the numbers, the statistics that were cited in that hearing today, one report, Instagram's own internal study saying 24% of users between the age of 13 and 15 had received unwanted sexual advances in the last seven days. Mark Zuckerberg was asked about it and he said, I don't want to answer that. And that's because the allegation is that they did nothing about it. So they're really under pressure to prove that they are taking this seriously and not putting profit first. That's right. And for lawmakers, the only way they can prove that is by endorsing some of the bills that they want passed. Uh, specifically, those bills include COSA. This is the Kids Online Safety Act. There's also Stop Child Sexual Abuse Material. And this chips away at tech companies' ability 
to, uh, sorry, their legal protections to allow victims to sue them. I think what was interesting was that, again, going back to the families, uh, the lawmakers kept saying, well, families should be able to sue you. They should be able to sue you. And, um, you know, and some of them said, well, they can. Mark Zuckerberg said that we are being sued. And th there is criticism here that, well, actually, Congress should be passing laws. Uh, it's been, I think, more than a decade since one child safety law was passed, and that was a pretty narrow one. So there is pressure on Congress to do something, and there is will to do it, by the way. I, I don't think I've ever seen Republicans and Democrats so united as I saw them united today. So that's the big question is, will this hearing yield anything? Will it result in any kind of concrete legislation? Normia, good to have you there. Thanks very much. That's Normia Iqbal there joining us live from Washington. I want to talk to Andy Burrow now. He's the former head of child safety online policy at the NSPCC and advisor at the Molly Rose Foundation. That's a charity that focuses on suicide prevention in children. Andy, thank you for being on the programme. Um, Nomia there explaining some of what we heard, and it was a rare opportunity, this, wasn't it, to grill the bosses of the five biggest social media platforms. But I wonder whether you heard enough. Were you reassured by anything that you heard today? Well, it was good to see um, senators take this issue seriously over several hours of hearings today, Ben. But really what we saw from the five big tech chief executives was more of what we've seen from these hearings before, a trail of obfuscation and denial. We saw all five of the CEOs uh, say one after the other about how important this issue was to them, emphasising that they were parents and they took this seriously, only to then discover that three of them had to be subpoenaed to actually turn up in Washington, D.C. today. We saw Mark Zuckerberg say in his opening remarks that he didn't think that there was a connection between his platform and the negative impacts on mental health for teenagers and young people. That's despite, back in 2019, internal emails in the company warning of a palpable risk of further deaths because of how Instagram's algorithms were recommending suicide and self-harm content. So more of the same with big tech chief executives, just really in denial. And our correspondent in Washington making the point there that uh, Republicans and Democrats were united and, it, and it, there's a sense that something could change because there is that unity in terms of bringing in perhaps new legislation to force action on the part of the social media giants. But the issue here is that it is cross-border. This needs a global unified response. Um, we know that the EU has struggled to put measures in place. They are different to those in the United States and elsewhere around the world. Just explain what is being done around the world to try to present a united response to what needs to be done to prioritise child safety online. Well, we are seeing measures um, around the globe to start to introduce uh, legislation. It's much needed legislation because it's very, very clear that that's the only way that the incentives will be there for tech companies to take children's safety seriously. So here in the UK, we've seen the Online Safety Act passed. That means that there's um, a statutory regulator who will now impose duties of care on platforms to identify and address uh, reasonably foreseeable harms. Uh, we have seen legislation passed uh, in the EU and further legislation specifically relating to child abuse um, is currently being considered. But the US is the big prize here. And I think one of the objectives for senators today was to absolutely draw attention to the scale of entirely preventable harm that we're seeing children face on social networks to try and make sure that child safety legislation on Capitol Hill 
goes to the floor because, as you say, there is a real spirit of bipartisanship here. Clearly, that's very unusual in the US, but, you know, we've seen that in legislatures right around the world. If this goes to a floor vote in the next few months, the US can pass legislation. And obviously, given that most of these companies are US-based, that would be a massive, massive step forward. Briefly for us, Andy, how confident are you that that will happen soon? Well, we absolutely can see signs of progress around legislation, but it has to happen because it is only through legislation and regulation that we will see the dial really change. Otherwise, we will just see more and more of this preventable harm affecting children and families in the UK and right around the world. Andy, so good to have you with us tonight. Thank you. That's Andy Burrow there, former head of child safety and online policy at the NSPCC. Thank you. Why do black people love menthols so much? I don't, I don't know. Um, that is correct. <laughs> Nobody knows. Because that's what Newports are. That is correct. Uh, is it a fact that they uh, like menthol cigarettes? I'm not even sure. Um, I don't know. The great that taste? is correct. <laughs> no one knows. Black people! On the Efforts to ban menthol cigarettes and cigars have always been entwined with race. The flavor is most heavily consumed in black communities and is a big reason why black men face the highest rate of lung cancer. But when the federal government banned flavored tobacco 15 years ago, it left menthol on the market. The Biden administration has since put off implementing a ban. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports. Lincoln Mondi grew up in Texas in a biracial family. His mother's white family used regular tobacco, but not his black father. My dad exclusively smoked menthol cigarettes. Menthol was such a part of black culture, and I knew that black people smoked menthol, and that was just a fact. Mondi turned his curiosity about menthol into a documentary for the Truth Initiative, an anti-smoking advocacy group. He realized his racial associations with menthol came from decades of targeted marketing in black magazines like Ebony or from cultural events in black neighborhoods. Cool Cigarettes hosted this jazz festival in Detroit for years, right? Philip Gardner is a public health activist and co-chair of the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. Today, over 85 percent of African-American adults who smoke cigarettes smoke menthol cigarettes. And that's because of the predatory marketing. He says women and Latino people were also marketed menthol's cooling properties, which makes it easier to inhale deeply. The more deeply you inhale, the more nicotine and toxins you take in, the more addicted you become. And the more lethal they are. Anti-smoking advocates point to menthol as a clear contributor to racial disparities in health, specifically cancers. The Food and Drug Administration was set to enact a long-awaited ban on menthol cigarettes and cigars last August. The White House since delayed it until March, angering activists like Gardner. It's ridiculous. Thousands of lives are being lost because of the inactivity of the FDA and now the White House. Menthol has become a flashpoint of controversy, dividing black leaders. Gardner blames the delays on the industry, he says, is wielding its financial influence within the black community. It recently sponsored a poll finding a menthol ban would sway more black voters against President Biden. One of the most vocal and powerful voices against menthol bans is civil rights activist Reverend Al Sharpton. Sharpton and his group National Action Network didn't respond to requests for comment, 
that they previously acknowledged working with and receiving funding from the industry. Smoking is bad for your health, no question about it. But if it's a health issue, why ain't you banning all cigarettes? In lobbying against a federal ban, Sharpton repeated his argument that it would lead to more over-policing of black people. Lincoln Mondi, the filmmaker, says coming from respected leaders like Sharpton, messages that tap into existing fears about policing can be deeply confusing and divisive for the black community. My granny has pictures of Al Sharpton on her mantle, along with Jesus, especially for elders. Like you have black leaders that are sewing this tobacco PR line around policing and around sort of like they're just trying to take things away from black people. Mondi says the delays have already handed the industry a win. Since places like California and Massachusetts banned menthol, the tobacco industry started selling menthol-like flavors that aren't technically menthol and therefore not subject to those new laws. He says a similar end run could happen around any national ban if it takes effect. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. Anyone ever been down south? So you guys know what I'm talking about. That the racism down there is just fucking... Even more news today about the water system in Jackson, Mississippi. Residents have faced service disruptions, boil water notices, and inaccurate water bills. In fact, the billing system was so messed up that the utility was banned from cutting off service for supposedly unpaid bills. Now the utility says it's made enough improvements to justify shutoffs. Here's Stefan Bisahov, Gulf States Newsroom. If you've ever tried to read your water bill, it can feel like you need to be a lawyer to figure it out or an accountant. Lucky for James Henley, he's both. And after his Facebook post about his water bill in the fall, he can add a new title. It got so many reads that Facebook sent me something that said I could become an influencer if I wanted to. (laughs) That was hilarious. He remembers going nearly two months without safe tap water. Most people in Jackson have never drank Jackson water. You would bathe in it and you would cook with it. But you couldn't really do that anymore either. And beyond the health concerns, there are those bills. Jackson has a history of inaccurate, expensive, and sometimes just missing water bills, which is why shutoffs haven't happened in a long time. People have gotten into the habit of maybe not paying or not getting a bill or not even recognizing they need a bill. That's Ted Hennepin. He was appointed by a district judge about a year ago to fix Jackson's water system. He's been installing new water meters across the city to make bills accurate. And now he says they need to bring back shutoffs to pay for Jackson's underfunded water system. We have to do a whole education campaign to help people understand that water's not free. We're all in this together. Everyone's got to do their part. He says rates will be reasonable and affordable, but people have to pay their bills. James Henley isn't so sure. When I heard that they were saying, we're going to start cutting off poor people's water because they haven't paid these extravagant bills that we sent them. I sat down and said, well, that doesn't make any sense because these bills are based on false data. What Henley means by false data is that some customers like him have not been billed for how much water they actually use. Instead, their bills are estimated. That's the case for people who don't have a new water meter yet. Henley's bill was estimated at 160 bucks for a one-story house he owns. But the thing is, Henley doesn't live there. It's his law office. Obviously, you have to go to the restroom. Obviously, you have to wash your hands. I'm not cooking here. I'm not bathing here. 
I'm not doing anything here that will raise my bill to that extent. He called to get someone out to read his meter, and they came two months later. Henley recorded the moment on his phone. Jackson Water finally sent someone out to read my meter. Problem is, my meter hadn't been read in so long, they can't figure out where the meter is. It took two days to find it. And the meter reading was way less than the number on his bill, like off by more than 230,000 gallons. So Henley did what any good accountant would and made a spreadsheet. He crunched the numbers and showed they overcharged him over the years by more than $3,000. Jackson Water disputes Henley's version of what happened, but they did pay him back. And they adjusted my water mill by the $3,208. Gave me a credit. He documented all this on Facebook to show other people how to possibly get their own refunds. The utility says nearly all of its customers now have new meters, and it won't shut off water for anyone still getting estimates. They also say they have payment plans to help customers keep their water on. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basahan, Jackson, Mississippi. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of it comes from it's China. Racist. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. A museum in Seattle's Chinatown International District has unveiled a mural that's a response to an alleged hate crime. KNKX reporter Scott Greenstone was at the unveiling yesterday. I'm in Canton Alley next to the Wing Loop Museum of the Asian Pacific American Experience. Last September, right here, a white man allegedly smashed the windows with a sledgehammer, yelling that, quote, the Chinese had ruined his life. But today, over those windows is an aquamarine, blue, and green pheasant with blazing red tail feathers, stretching across the nine windows that were shattered. The museum's director, Joel Barakiel Tan, says the mural symbolizes strength, grit, and beauty. The colors, the form really speaks to the divine grace, right, that we're trying to call back into the alley. Walking beside him are Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell and Governor Jay Inslee. The state and city governments are funding $100,000 in repairs. There will be a public blessing during the Lunar New Year celebration on Saturday. Scott Greenstone, KNKX News. What to give you, blood? Three months, man. What you doing in here anyway? You ought to be home with your mama. How old are you, boy? Thirteen. Thirteen. Damn. The bastards must be running out of niggas to arrest. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Lauren Maloney. A Burlington woman is suing the Queen City for discrimination and excessive force. Seven Days was first to report this, and since then, the ACLU of Vermont has shared the details with us. ABC 22's Mike Hoey joins us now live from the newsroom. Well, Lauren, the ACLU is representing Kathy Austrian. Her lawsuit concerns a May 2021 interaction between police, paramedics, and her then 14-year-old son. You should know right away some of the body cam video you're about to see, even though it's been carefully edited, may be disturbing. The teen, who is black, stole vape pens from a gas station, according to his mother. Court documents show he had a history of behavioral, intellectual, and trauma issues and had recently changed his ADHD medication. Kathy Austrian called police, explained all of this, and wanted them to speak with her son. This case is the latest and truly horrific example in a line of situations we have seen 
where people's civil rights were not respected. The boy turned over all but one of the vape pens. According to the lawsuit, officers threatened to arrest him unless he also gave them the last one. Body cam video shows them forcing his hands behind his back. They took the remaining vape pen and can be heard saying, That's the last That's one. The last one. The teen struggled with the officers, who are shown handcuffing him and forcing him to the floor. When he screamed and contorted himself, paramedics were called in. They're accused of wrapping his head in a bag and determining he was in a state of excited delirium. The ACLU says this is a discredited diagnosis. And this is not my opinion. This is medical professionals who have been urging for years that excited delirium stop being used to label people's distress. Too often it's being used against people of color to justify police violence. The EMTs injected the boy with ketamine, an anesthetic often used to induce unconsciousness before taking him to UVM Medical Center. He was released the next day. Kathy Austrian filed an official complaint. The court documents show then-acting BPD Chief John Murad found the incident to be an appropriate use of force. There was a number of policies and directives that were reviewed as a result of this, and there were some changes that were made both to fire department and police department protocols uh, in response to this. Burlington Mayor Moreau Weinberger says the lawsuit doesn't surprise him. The city attorney, um, we have looked a little bit at the case that was just filed, and, and uh, you know, we're confident that the city's uh, position will, will, will be strong. Now, Lauren, we reached out to the city attorney's office ourselves. No response so far. And for her part, Kathy Austrian declined to be interviewed through her representation at the ACLU. Live in the newsroom tonight, Mike Hoey, ABC 22 News. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Despite a drop in crime rates and homicides the last four years, St. Louis area community members feel public safety officials shouldn't be hasty to take credit. St. Louis Public Radio's Lucretia Wembley spoke with one woman who's still grieving more than a year after losing her son to gun violence. 20-year-old Preston Jones grew up in the St. Louis region. He was a handsome fellow and the life of the party, according to his mother, Precious. He had considered becoming a homicide detective at one point, but ultimately dreamed of being an actor. He was most serious about escaping the violence that surrounded him and his friends in the Hazelwood community. You gonna make it out of St. Louis by the summer? You gonna die for what he said was, if you don't make it out of St. Louis by the summer, you're going to die here, for real. This was from a grainy video of Preston that his mother found in his phone a year ago. He was asleep at home in Hazelwood on June 17, 2022, when a bullet came through his window and killed him. She and her three sons were in the process of moving to Texas in an attempt to escape the violence. I just started praying and praying and praying. So I prayed from the time I you know, got in the car to the scene, but I kept saying the same prayer over and over, and I kept saying that he shall live and not die. The Hazelwood Police Department were already at the scene when she got there, but Precious says police lacked compassion and ended up arresting her other two boys for allegedly having warrants and refusing to share evidence. He kicks my son as he's putting my son in the car, and he's laughing, and they're all laughing because it's funny to them, but it's not funny to us, and it's not funny to me. I knew that they were not going to handle this case with integrity. 
When asked about it, Hazelwood police stopped short of addressing all of Precious's claims. Police say they believe she is merely upset that they haven't been able to solve her son's murder. But she's not alone in her criticisms. Media and other community groups in recent years have spotlighted police in the region for covering up their shortcomings and for having a lack of transparency. Precious was among dozens of community members who voiced their concerns during a town hall at the Urban League last month, including Inez Bordeaux, manager of community collaborations for the Arch City Defenders. We just sat here and watched him less than an hour ago lie and say that there are only 650 people inside of CJC, where we know for a fact that is not true. So while we're talking about listening and working, let's do that. But we have to start from a place of honesty. Absolutely. Bordeaux called out Public Safety Director Charles Coyle for his report on jail deaths last month. Despite criticism, police reported having a 75% homicide clearance rate at the start of this year. It's been over a year since her son's death, and Precious says she still hasn't received a copy of his autopsy report. She says she's been given the runaround by police and other city officials. A request by St. Louis Public Radio for a copy of the report is still pending. Arch City Defenders Executive Director Blake Strode says this isn't anything new. And most people either don't have the time, don't have the resources, don't have the know-how, or simply don't have the power to actually be able to, to force them to provide the kind of information that they really should be entitled to. He says it would be more simple if people actually cared. Most people in positions of power don't see these things as real problems. Or if they do, they don't act as if they see these things as real problems. After Preston's death, Precious created the Breaking Generational Poverty Foundation, a nonprofit that connects families with financial resources while navigating the justice system or after losing someone to gun violence. She specified that she doesn't hate police, but wishes there was more morality in the way they handle people. We have to stick together as a community, and even if we have differences with one another, we have to put those differences to the side for the betterment of the community because we are going to have generations of kids growing up with our parents. Precious says helping other women and families navigate the effects of gun violence is helping her cope with her own loss. I'm Lucretia Wembley, St. Louis Public Radio. In 2018, the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department conducted an internal audit of its force investigative unit, which was created in 2013 to investigate police shootings. What we know is that the audit was sharply critical of the unit's performance, and it found problems in each of the unit's 50 investigations up to that point. We also know what some of those problems were. Officers not being interviewed, warrants delayed, a report that needed 146 corrections months later. But these sorts of problems are just the tip of this iceberg. What it boils down to is this. We don't know much about St. Louis's force investigative unit, and we've got little insight into its faults because even six years after its completion, no one outside the police department has ever seen the 2018 audit in full. Last week, St. Louis Post-Dispatch columnist Tony Messenger published his own lengthy investigation into the audit, and he joins us now to discuss that work, including why the audit's been kept secret so long. Tony, welcome back to St. Louis on the Air. Thanks for having me, Elaine. Good to see you. So let's start with the, the beginning. What is the Force Investigative Unit, and where did it come from? So it was 
created at least at the beginning in 2013 when Sam Dotson was the police chief and Francis Slay was the mayor. It had actually been conceived in a study from UMSL of uh, Professor David Klinger um, and uh, Dan Isom, the former chief before uh, Sam Dotson. Uh, and the idea was that there are frequently problems when there is a police shooting, particularly in the black community, in which the community doesn't trust that the criminal justice system is properly investigating the police as to whether or not procedures were followed, uh, that, that there was a good, honest, fair, transparent investigation. So the idea behind the unit was police were going to have a separate independent unit that was going to investigate every time there was a police shooting. Mm -hmm. And was that in line with what was happening around the country as well? Well, there are there are a variety of different ways. Uh, Mr. Klinger, the the professor from Umsel, basically uh, advised the city that this is the best practice, having having an independent unit as compared to just regular homicide uh, detectives uh, investigating every time there's a there's a police shooting, mm -hmm. and so it it was within sort of best practices within. Uh, the policing community nationwide. And that unit really didn't get its start until 2014 um, when they staffed it up. And it really became a prominent unit in 2014 after the shooting death of Michael Brown in, in, in Ferguson, because then following that, there were some very high profile uh, police shootings and killings of black men in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And so that unit became very prolific and very much in the news in, in 2014, 2015, 16, 17, etc. Right. Now, in general, what is it that happens when a, a police officer uses force? Well, that's a good question because the, the, the origination of the force investigative unit, part of what Former Chief Dotson talked about and the unit's first director, uh, uh, Roger Englehart, who was a lieutenant at the time, talked about was that the whole purpose was for there to be transparency so that the community could trust, hey, you know what, when the, when the police tell us and when the prosecutor tells us that this was a reasonable shooting, that – the person had a gun and was and was pointing at police officers or firing at police officers or whatever the circumstance is, those reports were supposed to be published. And in fact, three of them early on, uh, three shootings that a lot of longtime St. Louis's St. Louisans will remember, uh, the death of Kajimi Powell, of Mansur Ball Bay, and Von Derrett Myers, those reports were all made public. Two of them are still on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch website as we speak. Mm. Um, that was the, the purpose so that the community can read the report, find out who was investigated, find out what they had to say, and make a reasonable judgment that, hey, the police did a good job here or the police didn't do a good job here and we want to see the prosecutor do something. Mm -hmm. This... F, uh, the, the federal or the force investigative unit. There are a lot of Fs here. Yeah, a lot of Fs. <laughs> um, when, when should it be coming into play? And what do we know about how it's not being brought into, uh, into the, the process of looking into what has happened when an officer has shot someone? So every time there is a... Uh, a, a police officer in St. Louis discharges their weapon. 
that's supposed to trigger FIU doing its own investigation. Um, and and we know that from based on the report that I obtained from a source and reported on in the Post Dispatch, we know that there had been fifty of those investigations between twenty fourteen and twenty eighteen. What we don't know is what most of those investigations found, because other than those first three that were made public, the police department at some point changed its philosophy, and they are not producing final investigative reports for the public on those shootings. And so we don't know what they found. We don't know the full extent of those investigations. Um, All we know ultimately is whether or not any charges have been brought, and there have been very few charges brought on on police shootings Mm -hmm. in the last several years. And just to to clarify, it is police shootings, not other uses of force that are investigated? Correct. It's got to be a discharge of a weapon. Okay. Now, the, the force investigative unit, what it's supposed to do, how, I mean, how does it go about figuring out whether any given use of force was warranted or not? Well, ultimately, at least as it was conceived, the the, the report that they produce is supposed to go to the prosecutor and the prosecutor is supposed to decide. The, the force investigative unit, at, at, at least as it was explained in its onset, was supposed to produce a neutral report. It's not going to say, hey, you need to charge so-and-so on this. Hey, this was a good shooting or a bad shooting. It's supposed to do an investigation, produce all the facts, give it to the prosecutor, and let the prosecutor decide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then produce that report to the public so that the public can have some transparency. This is the, the, the major problem that I found with the force investigative unit. First of all, there's been no transparency in terms of the reports uh, becoming available to the public, and secondly, the fact that they investigated themselves and found multiple problems with the force investigative unit investigations and then tried to keep that audit secret, that was really offensive to me because now you have information for the public that says, oh, by the way, our investigation of police shootings have been really bad and really shoddy, and we and we haven't done a very good job, but we're not going to bother telling you that. And mm-hmm. in fact, when, when it gets discussed in public court cases, when a reporter like me files a Sunshine Law request, we're going to keep that information from you, and we're not going to explain it. The police have offered no explanation whatsoever for their belief of what's in this audit, what it says, or why they want to keep it secret. Mm -hmm. We have Melanie, who is calling from Maryland Heights. Melanie, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Hi, good afternoon. Happy February 1st. Yes, same to you. Go ahead. Yeah, so my question was, um, what happens after these investigations where you have found that some of these officers who have been investigated have, have, in fact... Um, been found to have used excessive force. Um, Are they um, just let go of the force? Are they, you know, just given a slap on the wrist and allowed to rejoin? Are they, you know, dismissed for a certain period of time? And because, you know, the community doesn't necessarily know about these internal investigations that have gone on. And we would like to know 
how um, the St. Louis Police Department or St. Louis County Police Department has dealt with these officers who have used excessive force that the community no longer trusts. Mm -hmm. Melanie, thank you so much. Well, I mean, I can tell you, Melanie, that in the city, and that's what this investigation was at, was specifically the the city's police department, um, there is very little transparency. So, for instance, my investigation found that the former uh, head of the force investigative unit, a gentleman named Roger Englehart, was fired. Uh, The police department didn't tell anybody that he was fired. There was no public information, no public reporting on when he was fired back in 2021. Um, He was fired because of this report, which was made available in 2018, not fired for three years later. And one of the things that's fascinating that I found in court records is that Mr. Englehart himself would like a copy of this report that says he 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 did such a bad job sure. um, so that he can defend himself because he's actually f- uh, in, involved in two different court processes to try to get his job back. And and he hasn't seen the full report either. And um, so that lack of transparency says to the members of the public, we're not going to tell you when when there's a problem with our with our policing and that doesn't do anything to increase trust in the police department mm-hmm. now, before we came into the studio i had asked you what response has been to this investigative piece well the response i'm getting is interesting because it's from two different camps that that don't always necessarily get along uh, I've heard from a lot of police officers who are very upset that the city's keeping it private. Police officers don't like it when the city keeps secrets because it doesn't help them do their job better. And so they're upset at the city over the lack of transparency. So are the members of the black community and the protest community who were on the streets when those shootings were taking place, going back to Michael Brown and, and Mansur Ball Bay and Von Derrett Myers and et cetera, because th- what, one of the things they were asking for is, look, we don't trust when a, a young black person gets shot by police that you're doing a good investigation. And now they find out that for six years the city has known that some of those investigations were really poor, or at least the city believes they do, in an audit, and they're keeping it secret. So – Basically, the input I'm receiving is everybody's pretty upset that the city thinks that it's okay to keep this audit secret. Yeah. So to the point of the audit, there is some information that you've been able to glean. What is in it and what's in the portions that you've been able to obtain? The the portions that I've been able to obtain and, and, and the reason I'm careful about saying that I don't know that I have the, the, the entire audit is because in court records there are some references to – a number of pages, that the audit is X number of pages, and I don't have the number of pages that equal the same amount of pages that are mentioned in, in federal court records. So mm-hmm. so I can't be sure that I have uh, a full portion of the audit. But basically, it's got two sections, and it's got a section that all 50 investigations uh, that took place while Lieutenant Englehart was in charge of that unit are discussed in some capacity, and there are critical comments made on each of them. And some of them relate to questions over evidence that was or wasn't collected, questions over why somebody was or wasn't interviewed, questions about um, the delays and whether or not Lieutenant Englehart was actually paying attention to, to the investigations and moving them through in a timely fashion. There are lots of critical comments. Um, none of them are related to 
uh, Mr. Engelhart doing anything that's that's fraudulent related to you know the covering up any sort of shootings. But there are just questions about whether or not the investigations were shoddy and questions mm-hmm. about whether or not the public can trust that they were good investigations. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell filed a motion today to overturn the murder conviction of Marcellus Williams. Good evening, everyone. I'm Kelly Jackson. And I'm Mike Bush. Williams was sentenced to death for the 1998 murder of a former St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter, Felicia Gale, in her University City home. Five on your side's Laura Barcheski has been looking into the filing, and she's live tonight outside Bell's office. Laura. Mike and Kelly, while St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell was not available for an interview today, court documents from his office explain several reasons why they think Williams might actually be innocent. University City Police say on August 11, 1998, Dr. Daniel Pikus came home and found his wife, Felicia Gale, stabbed to death in the hallway with one of their kitchen knives still lodged in her neck. Areas of the house were a mess, her purse was missing, and a laptop had been stolen. Felicia, known as Leisha, was a former reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Her brutal murder shook the whole neighborhood. It made us very uneasy for a long time, and it was just not even the fear so much as the fact that um, we just wanted justice to be done. Marcellus Williams was convicted of her murder in 2001, accused of stabbing her 43 times. There was no reason for this crime. It was extremely brutal and vicious, and that's why he deserves the death penalty, and I believe that's why he is going to get the death penalty. He did, in fact, receive the death penalty and was just hours from being executed in 2017 when then-Governor Eric Greitens granted a stay of execution. He has um, steadfastly uh, uh, stuck to his innocence. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, I've asked him about getting the execution date and what that felt like, you know, and he would always say, you know, these things are in God's hands. He's a very faithful person. Michelle Smith, an advocate fighting the death penalty, says Williams became a Muslim in prison, taking on the Muslim name Khalifa. She says he pursued every legal avenue to overturn his conviction and with the help of the Midwest Innocence Project and a new 2021 law that allows prosecuting attorneys to file a motion to vacate a conviction, he has a chance. So we definitely have hope that, um, you know, Khalifa will be home, you know, I'm hoping this year. In court documents, St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell says two big reasons they believe Williams is innocent are DNA evidence on the knife that was never heard in court was examined and is not a match to Williams. And informants in the case were unreliable. Um, Khalifa's case, there were um, witnesses who, uh, what, what we call informants and people who, um, Ultimately, we're not telling the truth, but got some kind of benefit from that. I spoke with one of Gail's family members this afternoon who declined to comment and asked that the public respect their family's privacy during this difficult time. I also talked with some of her former colleagues at the Post-Dispatch who tell me she was a very kind person who was passionate about social justice. Reporting live in Clayton, Laura Barcheski, Five on Your Side. Police degrade. I don't know. You know, it's awful. You wonder why a nigga don't go completely mad. You know, you do. You get your shit together. You work all week, right? And then you get dressed. You make, may say, can't make $125. We get $80 if he lucky. Right? And he go out, get clean, be driving with his old lady, going out to a club, and police pull over. Get out of the car! It was a robbery. A nigga looks just like you. All right, put your hands up, take your pants down, spread your cheeks. Now, what nigga feel like having fun after that? 
City Council member Youssef Salam was expected to join the mayor and the NYPD tonight, but he backed out after being pulled over in Harlem because his windows are tinted dark. Salam says the officer never gave him a reason for being stopped, which he says is why he did not join the ride-along. Fox 5's Jessica Formoso joins us live in the newsroom right now with the back and forth between the city council member and the NYPD, and also a very important piece of video from the officer's body cam. Hey, Jessica. Arthur, good evening. That's right. That video, 40 seconds long, Councilman Youssef Salam saying it was a triggering interaction, but the NYPD says the officer was nothing but respectful. Councilman Youssef Salam, one of the exonerated members of the Central Park Five, says he was stopped by police Friday night without an explanation as he was driving through Harlem with his family. In a statement, the council member says, in part, quote, I introduced myself as Councilman Youssef Salam and subsequently asked the officer why I was pulled over. Instead of answering my question, the officer stated, we're done here and proceeded to walk away. But after making these allegations, the NY NYPD released body cam video. It shows the interaction between Salam and the officer. At no point do we hear Salam asking the officer why he was stopped. Hey, I'm Officer Protector from the 26 Precinct. I'm Councilmember Salam. Oh, Councilmember? This district, district 9. Oh, okay. Have a good one. Yeah, you're working, right? All right, take care, sir. According to the police report, the basis for the stop, a vehicle and traffic law infraction. The officers pulled over Salam's blue sedan with Georgia plates for driving with dark tinted windows beyond legal limits, a violation of New York state law. The stop was plausible and sound. The officer did have the right to issue a summons based on the tinted windows. However, it's a discretionary call and the officer elected to just move on and let the motorist go in this particular case. So there was no fault on the part of the officer. The NYPD saying throughout this interaction, the officer conducted himself professionally and respectfully. He followed all proper procedures, including procedures that were put in place after Detective Russell Timoshenko was shot and killed through tinted windows in 2007. Salam, who was recently named chairman of the city council's public safety committee, was supposed to attend tonight's NYPD right along with other city council members to understand and learn how police officers deal with the public. This comes as the city council is set to override Mayor Adams' veto on the How Many Stops Act, a bill that would require officers to document every interaction they have with New Yorkers. Darren Porcher is a retired NYPD lieutenant. However, if there's a problem with the process, he's at the forefront of the Public Safety Commission in the city council. Therefore, he can act as a solution and not the problem. And this is where we manifest to a better place between police and community relationships. The NYPD saying tonight that the officer should be commended for his polite, professional, and respectful conduct and for using his discretion appropriately. The PBA also standing by its offer, officer that is saying, Councilman, the council member owes him an apology. Arthur? All right, thank you very much, Jessica. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today. The Trump effect, see this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. <laughs> 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 
the Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink under, under Trump on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is in stage white supremacy. So you see, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. The phrase white Christian nationalism has been in the headlines quite a bit recently, but what does it really mean? Laura Barone-Lopez recently spoke to one expert to better understand the concept and its reach in American society. Brad Onishi is a former evangelical minister who once identified as a Christian nationalist himself. He left the church in 2005 and began studying religion from the outside, including extremism. He now hosts the popular podcast Straight White American Jesus and is the author of Preparing for War, the extremist history of white Christian nationalism and what comes next. I began by asking him what that term actually means. Christian nationalism is an ideology that uh, is based around the idea that this is a Christian nation, that this was founded as a Christian nation, and therefore it should be a Christian nation today and should be so in the future. Uh, according to survey data, Christian nationalists uh, agree with statements like the federal government should declare the United States of America a Christian nation. Our laws should be based on Christian values. Uh, being a Christian is important if you want to be a real American. Onishi tracks a number of subgroups and ideas under the umbrella of white Christian nationalism, including what's known as the New Apostolic Reformation. Well, the New Apostolic Reformation is notable for a number of reasons. One, uh, it's built around the idea that Christians are called to a new transformation or reformation of the United States. Uh, these are Christians who want to revolutionize the way that our country looks and to make it great again in terms of being a Christian nation. Uh, they also are deeply invested in the notion of spiritual warfare, the idea that uh, we are called as Christians to fight a cosmic battle between good and evil, and that it's our duty to be uh, boots on the ground for God uh, in that conflict. What this has led to some decades later is the New Apostolic Reformation leaders, the apostles and the prophets that are really at the head of this movement were some of the earliest to support Donald Trump in 2016, and they've remained steadfast uh, in that support. They were at the very avant-garde of trying to get the 2020 election overturned in the wake of Joe Biden's victory and mobilizing folks to be at January 6th. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of New Apostolic Reformation Christians at January 6th, as an example. We know that two-thirds of white evangelicals sympathize or adhere to white Christian nationalist beliefs. So where do they fall within this larger movement? I think white evangelicals are the group we think of when we think of white Christian nationalism, and for good reason. These are folks who, when we think about the Iowa caucuses, in 2016, Trump's white evangelical voters were about 20% of his share of voters in that cycle. Just a few weeks ago in 2024, uh, that grew to well over 50%. White evangelicals remain committed to the MAGA movement, and one of the key indicators of why is Christian nationalism. Are there leaders across these 
subgroups of white Christian nationalism that are tied to the former president directly or to his larger network? Yes. Uh, for example, uh, a group of New Apostolic Reformation leaders, uh, apostles and prophets and others were present at the White House a week before January 6th. Speaker Mike Johnson has direct ties to the New Apostolic Reformation. Speaker Mike Johnson is somebody who's sought the counsel and the friendship of Timothy Carcaden, who is a New Apostolic Reformation pastor from his home district uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana. Timothy Carcaden is a close associate with Dutch Sheets. Dutch Sheets is perhaps the most ardent Trump supporter in the New Apostolic Reformation. He's the one who may have done the most of any Christian leader in the United States to mobilize folks to try to overturn the 2020 election and to uh, make sure to attend uh, January 6th. One of the most frightening things, I think, about Mike Johnson is the flag he hangs outside of his office, an appeal to heaven flag. The appeal to heaven flag goes back to the Revolutionary War, George Washington. It was inspired by John Locke. But over the last 10 years, the, the appeal to heaven flag has been popularized by Dutch Sheets. Dutch Sheets sees the appeal to heaven flag as a symbol of Christian revolution. If you look closely at January 6th, you will see dozens of appeal to heaven flags. It may have a long history, but in the contemporary context, uh, it has a very specific meaning. So the fact that Mike Johnson has it hanging outside of his office, uh, to me, signifies uh, how he understands his role as Speaker of the House in terms of being a Christian and being an American. In a statement to the NewsHour, a spokesperson for Johnson's office said, quote, the speaker has long appreciated the rich history of the flag. Any implication that the speaker's use of the flag is connected to the events of January 6th is wildly inaccurate. But Onishi says the concerning links go beyond the conservative politicians themselves. Last month, Lance Wallnau, a key New Apostolic Reformation figure, announced he was partnering with Charlie Kirk, the influential right-wing activist who leads Turning Point USA. They're going to be visiting and focusing on swing states, Wisconsin, Arizona, Pennsylvania. Uh, they claim they've already signed up 2,500 churches, and they want to mobilize those churches directly for political involvement and specifically to get Trump reelected. The two of them together signifies a crossover. It signifies uh, a joining in a way that promises, I think, to be quite potent. Meanwhile, some have mobilized around what GOP leaders have labeled an invasion at the southern border. I asked Onishi about a protest convoy calling itself God's Army, currently making its way to Texas. I think the end goal for the convoy is to kind of play a part or play a role in what they take to be uh, the story that is unfolding in the United States. Uh, Christian nationalists understand themselves to be playing a character. They are drawn into a narrative that says, uh, you are at the last battle. You have a chance to do something that is much bigger than you. Will you answer that call? Will you come to D.C. In, on January 6th? Will you ride with us to the southern border? Because these are the moments, these are the, 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 the battles that will shape our country. This is the cosmic war between good and evil. Are you really going to sit on the sidelines? Some of us can laugh that off. We can think that that's a fringe ideal. But January 6th was not something to laugh off. And some of the events we've seen since then, the swatting of judges' houses, the evacuations of capitals due to bomb threats, uh, so many more examples, little fires everywhere, are not things we can laugh off. And so uh, I think the trucker convoy has cosmic goals as it plays a part in a very earthly standoff between Governor Abbott and the Biden administration. Brad Onishi, thank you for your time. Thanks for, so much for having me.
she's pure alligator, pure white. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. Albino Just about every day on the page, you can find new photos of White Raven, aloft, with its feathers translucent in the light, at play with another raven in the snow, or up to some kind of mischief, like the video in which it unscrews a bolt from a street lamp, or in another video where it preaches to the choir. So different. Glenn Klinkhart is a retired police detective who has almost made tracking White Raven a full-time job. We all know what a raven looks like. We all know the shape, how it's supposed to look. And then when you see this, this white raven with this genetic difference, it just kind of stops you. Scientists say the white raven is very rare, but how rare? Rick Sinnott, a wildlife biologist, says he knows of only two other white raven sightings in Anchorage. The last one was 20 years ago. It wasn't as white as this one. It was kind of a bronze color. It was very beautiful. Sinnott says another white raven was spotted 20 years before that and believes three sightings over the course of four decades meets the definition of rare, especially when you consider the genetic odds. Initially, Senate worried that other ravens would pick on the white raven. When it's around other ravens, it doesn't seem to raise the feathers on the top of his head that would suggest that it was subordinate. In fact, raven seems more like an alpha bird. In a recent post, Glenn Klinkhart shared pictures of white raven in a spat with four black ravens over a discarded haagen curtain of white raspberry chocolate truffle ice cream. And in the final photo, raven prances around with its prize. It's one of more than 10,000 photos Klinkhart has snapped of white raven since October. But there's one he's very proud of, taken on a day in which he found the bird completely alive. Alone. He laid down on the snow to watch with camera in hand. That white raven came about two feet from me and looked in my camera lens and then tilted its head and then said, okay, and then it wobbled off. Klinkart says he was so close, the photo showed his reflection in the bird's blue eye. A magical moment. And in many Alaska Native stories, the bird is a mystical being. Mita DeWitt, a Thlinkit healer who works with medicinal plants, says she first heard about White Raven years ago from another traditional healer, the late Rita Blumenstein, a Yupik from southwest Alaska known as Grandma Rita. She would say, we will see a White Raven, and that's when we'll know that humanity as a whole is shifting towards one of peace. DeWitt says it's a prophecy Grandma Rita heard from her elders, an example of the white raven's long history as a messenger bird. Even the Greek god Apollo had one that turned from white to black after displeasing the god. And in Alaska Native stories, raven also transforms. DeWitt says not to forget that raven is a trickster. Her uncle tells a story about how Raven wanted to bring mankind fresh water to drink, so it tried to steal a bucket from a chief's house. Soot blackened his feathers as he escaped through a smoke hole. And in another version of that story, Raven turns black after he steals the sun, the moon, and the stars to bring light into the world. DeWitt believes 
Raven has transformed yet again and has returned to encourage mankind to save the planet. It gives me a profound sense of hope and even beyond hope. Some Facebook followers have speculated about whether White Raven is male or female. Rick Sennett says it's hard to tell, but during courtship, he's seen males fly up in the air, drop sticks, then swoop down to catch them. When males are trying to impress females, they go into a, quite a frenzy of, of that kind of behavior. Zinnett says the mating season begins at the end of January and runs through March. But chances are White Raven will move on come spring and head into the wilderness. But for now, the bird brings warmth and cheer into the heart of an Anchorage winter. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. See you in there? Who is it that you're looking for? The Negro ball player. Is he in there? He's asleep right now. Maybe you want to come back in the morning. <laughs> no, I ain't coming back. Other fellas is coming. And they ain't happy that he's staying here in Sanford playing ball with white boys. <laughs> Let me tell you something, sir. No, you listen to me, young man. You best just skedaddle on out of here. Because if they get here and he's still here, there's going to be trouble. You understand? Trouble. Trouble, 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 trouble. <laughs> We're tracking breaking news at noon. The Jackie Robinson statue that was stolen from McAdams Park is found this morning, dismantled and burned. Police are promising arrests, while the league founder says a new statue will come to the park. KSN's Derek Lytle has been covering this story since it broke. He says he, uh, he joins us live from Garvey Park. Derek, tell us what they found. Jason, here in Garvey Park is where the statue was found burning this morning. As you can see, the remnants of what is left behind from the burning trash can, the Jackie Robinson statue is not salvageable. Now, the call came in shortly after 8.30 this morning for a fire in a trash can at Garvey Park. After the fire was put out, firefighters saw that it was pieces of the Jackie Robinson statue. Wichita Police Chief Sol Joe Sullivan says the investigation has been active and will not end until there are arrests. So for those of you who are in any way involved in this, that means whether you are involved with stealing the statue, whether or not you accepted the statue, you were part of the destruction of the statue, it is only a matter of time. It would be in your best interest to simply turn yourself in, come forward, admit your part in this. Councilman Brandon Johnson saying today that this is a heartbreaking discovery, but pledged that the symbol of hope will return. He encouraged the community to donate to the GoFundMe and said local businesses have pledged their support. Now, league founder Bob Lutz shared with me today that they're about at $8,000 towards a new statue, and he encourages everyone to get involved and help donate so that they can see that statue again at McAdams Park. Here for you, Derek Lytle, KSN News 3.
An update to a story that we first brought you yesterday. The family of Harold Phillips, the man who was mauled by three dogs in Detroit, is now suing the dog's owners and the city. It comes as Phillips is still in the hospital after having his arm amputated. CBS News Detroit's Gino Vici is on your block in Southfield, where he spoke with the family's attorney. Well, as you can imagine, Shante Phillips is absolutely devastated. Her husband, Harold, is lying in a hospital bed fighting for his life at this hour. Just yesterday, his arm had to be amputated. Now, the family has hired an attorney from here at the Jeffrey Figer Law Firm who says they are going after the city of Detroit. They say animal control knew how dangerous these dogs were and simply didn't do enough. It's not doing good. We're just... Shante Phillips says she is heartbroken, wondering if her husband Harold is going to survive a vicious attack where three dogs mauled him on Monday night as he left a bus stop near Long Acre and West Chicago Road. Dogs bit a pretty big hole out of his arm and tore his artery. So he lost a lot of blood. He's on dialysis. He has to keep getting transfusions. They cut off his right arm. Yes, sadly, Harold, only 35 years old and a father of six, had his arm amputated yesterday. And Shantae says the prognosis isn't looking good. And today is her daughter's eighth birthday with dad fighting for his life. I mean, he's in a medical induced coma. His liver and kidneys aren't doing good. His enzymes levels are really high, like it's supposed to be at 35, and he's at 7,800. James Harrington, the attorney representing the family, says his initial investigation revealed animal control cited this owner for his dogs in the past, and they knew how dangerous they were, and he wants someone to be held accountable. I did reach out to the city of Detroit. They are aware of this pending litigation resulting from this vicious dog attack. However, we are yet to hear back. In Southfield, Gino Vici, CBS News, Detroit. That if you want the ultimate expression of white supremacy and the white supremacist mentality, and you want to put it in the form of one person that I would name, and that's something I very seldom do, it would be Jeffrey Dahmer. Hmm. He's the ultimate expression of white supremacy. Everything that he was doing, working in a chocolate factory, the whole nine yards, and storing black males' bodies in canisters of lye and alcohol and whatnot, and got them in the refrigerator. And the ultimate expression, Roman Empire. Black death associated, black uh, 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 anti-sex with non-white people associated ultimately with death as being the ultimate. Gather them up, befriend them to the extent that saying that, hey, I'm going to take you, a black male, and make you ultimately effeminate, and then kill you. Mm -hmm. First chance I get.
And he ate them too, didn't he? Wasn't that his thing? Yes, and eat the bodies, eat the body parts. Got him, got him in the, re- got the body parts uh, in wrappers in the refrigerator. And got other body parts. I mean, they didn't know what to do with. I mean, because he got so many, and got them in big drums uh, full of acid and whatnot. Keep them right there. Not somewhere way out in the woods somewhere. Keep them right there in the apartment. Frozen femurs in the freezer. Jeffrey Dom. Clint woman is waking up behind bars this morning and facing charges after officers discovered a man's dismembered body inside her freezer. That gruesome discovery happened on Monday as a result of a Crime Stoppers tip. And this morning, we have learned that police have charged Heather Steins. She's expected to face a judge later on today. Eyewitness News reporter Phil Tate is live in Flatbush this morning with the latest details. Phil, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Shantae. Police tell us that 45-year-old Heather Steins has officially been charged with the concealment of a human corpse and is expected to be arraigned later today. Now, this is a really bizarre story that we've been following all week. As police came to this apartment building just right behind me for a wellness check, finding Steins in that apartment, but then also finding a human corpse in a taped-up fridge. Now, at the time of the wellness check, we know that Steins was taken into custody and that she was, this was all called in from a Crime Stoppers tip, which led police to the third floor apartment. Now, it is there where they would find the unthinkable, a dismembered body, including a head and limbs. Well, detectives believe this body had been in the fridge for several months and was a 40-year-old man involved in a drug dispute. Now, an autopsy will reveal the identity of this body. And as we learn more about the suspect, Hines had three open warrants for petty larceny from 2022. And this was at the time of her arrest. And well, for neighbors, they're simply stunned. She don't bother nobody, but I know she smoke back and forth to get, you know, to get her stuff. It surprised me up to now. Yeah, and so many questions just loom at this hour as this has been ruled a homicide, yet no one is in their custody responsible in this death. Now, police do want to find a man believed to have been living in that apartment with Stein, so we'll be waiting to hear more information there. We also are anticipating to hear from the medical examiner's office for an official cause of death. That's the latest. Very challenging. Man, oh man. Already got our data in. Compensatory call in. Negro History Month. Couldn't be Negro History Month without some uh, wacky tech issues uh, happened kind of mid-broadcast but we were still connected and everything so I didn't want to do too much messing around until uh, we got to a stable part. Anywho, not for spectators. If you have thoughts, counter-racist suggestions, observations, the number to dial 605-313-5164 the code 564 Nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. The number again six oh five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. We will be here, I believe. Hopefully no tech issues between now and then or goofy weather. We should be here uh, Monday, irregular time. Once again, I'm no fan of the goofiness 
uh, early, you know, I'm always, let's stay at the normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, but it is, you know, a rather large planet, the time differences and all of that. So sometimes we try to uh, accommodate as best we can uh, and have to be a little bit earlier than 5. So I think Monday it'll be uh, like... Mm, yeah, oh, might be cheap whiz. Might even be eleven AM. Like it might even be official uh morning uh for Monday, at least people on the Pacific, eleven AM uh and then two PM uh Pacific or excuse me, two PM Eastern for Monday. Uh but we'll post uh make sure that folks are aware as we proceed. But that'll be for Monday and we might even have uh, bonus programs for Wednesday but we'll detail all of that uh, as we get to Monday at any rate broadcast for today compensatory calling uh, let's see I have a counter racist experiment uh, let's see the we'll do based on what we just heard we will see how many folks are aware the name Kaushin Gesler, right? We'll see how many folks. No, you don't get to go look. It doesn't matter if you know how to uh, spell it, all the rest of it. That's totally irrelevant. Uh, just are you, have you heard the name Kaushin Gelzer before. Yay, nay. We'll do we'll do a comparison. So have you heard the name? Again, don't get on your phone, that defeats the purpose. Just have you heard? Doesn't really count after you hear details about the case to be like, oh yeah, that's that's eh. eh. If somebody said like for it to really mean something like they because that's an irregular name. You should be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah, no battle. So do you know Kaushin Gelzer? Do you know who that is? Yay, nay. That's one of those dichotomous. Yay, nay. Then we'll come back on the other side. Are you familiar with the book Legacy? A black physician reckons with racism in medicine familiar have you heard it know anything about it yay another dichotomous yay nay title again legacy a black physician reckons with racism in medicine again don't get on your phone go look it up that misses the point do you know yay Nay. Okay. Uh, invest if you think the cows is constructive, listener supported, counter racist radio. We've been on the air for 15 flipping years. You can let us know. You've done your 15. Can't say admirable work because you've cooned quite a bit of the time. You should sit down. Feel free to let us know because the linked grandsister, Dr. Kamal Kambon, he did say that if you've been doing whatever your work is, 
you're a black person you've been at it five ten years and you haven't solved the problem maybe you don't know what you're doing that might be the case for Augusti so you all can let us know 15 year mark you think we are wasting time shut it up man we've heard enough sit on down let us know that is worthy of consideration at 15 years because we might not have solved the problem now I will say when I heard that from Dr. Kanban you think about everything I said man I sure am glad that Mr. Fuller and Dr. Welsing heck even Dr. Kanban did not take that advice because whoo if they had stopped at the 15 year mark that would have been well before I and many other people were born so whew, we might have missed out in total in fact I think it took more than 15 years for Mr. Fuller's book to actually be published the first time around I'm not even talking about the edit and the word guide like we wouldn't have got that at all but man I don't know hmm. sometimes yeah I don't know Mr. Fuller uh, his advice is you just continue until justice just as the email states that should be the way that we think about this but there are different viewpoints worthy of consideration listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the cows is constructive hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com you'll see in the upper right corner paypal button You'll see beneath the button, links for Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, the Cash App address, cash.app, forward slash, dollar sign, decals. Enormous gratitude to all of the folks, non-white people around the universe who have kept us broadcasting for 15 years. That was not the plan or vision at all way back when. Hopefully we have been more accurate than not, helped victims of white supremacy get a better understanding of what it means to be white, what white supremacy racism is, and how it works. Now, one observation of many that I hope I've shared over the time that we've you know, been broadcasting, and hopefully I've learned a few things as a host sitting here all of this time. One, as a result of white supremacy racism, there are racks and racks of non-white people, particularly individuals classified as black, who do not read or do really any serious study. And that shouldn't be controversial. That's kind of, duh, we wouldn't be victims of white supremacy if that wasn't the case. Now, uh, if we were super smart, we would have figured out how to solve this problem. You need to say it differently. Now, that comes up in so many different ways. Uh, I've talked about with Neely Fuller Jr., Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, how I said, hey, a motivating part of this broadcast. Every time we had an opportunity to have them on the program or talk to them or talk about their concepts, many of the folks who do interviews and speak with them publicly they've not read the book it seems like they've never heard of these concepts uh, and so it's like we're always starting from the very beginning we never get to go you know in depth with any of these concepts or move forward that was a, a great 
weighing or motivating factor for Gus T at the beginning of the cows way back 15 years ago. Uh, that continues to be white people are most to blame, but that doesn't make things any better and it doesn't really change the situation. Uh, people frequently, and I've said this for years, people frequently, they are interviewing. It's not just Neely Fuller Jr., Dr. Welsing. I've said for years, hopefully one thing that stands out about the cows when we speak to authors on this program, I've read the material and I generally will, you know, give the caveat. That's not always true at the 15 year mark. I'm not even giving that. It didn't happen at all. Last year, we at no point had an author come on this program where I didn't read the material. Not one time. I said, well, dang, maybe 2022. Nope. We've done thousands of programs. I very seriously doubt you could even get a hundred. That wouldn't even be 10% of our product, by the way, but whatever. I don't even think you could get a hundred. In fact, I don't even think you could get 50 programs where we're going to speak to an author. We're going to talk about that subject. Not we're getting them on and we're talking about something else, but we're going to talk on that subject. And Gus T didn't read the book. That doesn't even happen on a once per year basis. That's standard operating procedure for most of the white and non-white hosts. That's not going according to my observation. They rat on themselves. They say this. There'll be authors. They were talking to the white man who wrote a murder rap about Tupac and Biggie being assassinated and all this and saying that Diddy did it all. Told you Diddy was no good. Uh, and these are people that work for Court TV. They got big time budgets, not old struggling Negro Gus T. And she got to the end of it. She said, you know, I'm going to have to get your book and check it out. Are you serious? Court TV struggling like Gus T. They got the what they call it, the shoestring budget. You couldn't get on Amazon $10 and get a Kindle copy to read the book to answer some intelligent questions. You don't even have staff members, interns for Court TV. They couldn't have went to the library and got a copy of this and read and got you some really nice cliff notes for the book. That's standard operating procedure for the white and non-white hosts. Not all, but I mean, it's racks of them. Hopefully that sets this broadcast apart. All of that said, at the 15-year mark, we've had a book club that yours truly has facilitated for over a decade. At the 15-year mark, dare I say, I have a slightly more cultured palate for reading. Is it all right to say that as a Negro? I know I'm, I'm ignorant and stupid, worthless Negro from the, I know. Yes, 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 yes. Got it. All right. But I have facilitated a book club for over a decade. Have you done that? All right. So I have a slightly more cultured palate. I really give the side eye when people recommend a book, particularly by a black person. Oh man, white person or a non-white person. When they get to, you got to check out some James Bald. Oh God. Ugh. Ugh. Any of that. So I really, I stammered one because most of the time people don't recommend books to me spectacular but most of the time people don't recommend books to me 
So it's kind of peculiar when they recommend a book at all, but much less to come and recommend a book by a black person. So it really sticks out within a 10 day period to have like four or five people recommend the same book written by a black person legacy. I get it. I understand the logic of now. Why would that happen? Oh, she was on democracy now this week and she was on PBS and she was on MSNBC. It's Negro history month, the publishing industry. It's popular to release Negro books, particularly if they want a lot of black people to buy it. It's popular to release them now. Black History Month or January for Dr. King's holiday. We've had people talk about this before. Many popular books are released around this time of year. That is not a coincidence or an accident. So that's part of the science of, wow, why would there be an eruption of all these people suggesting this book at this moment? And then I suspect lots of people, what I just said, recommending a book they haven't read. That gave me pause if all of you all had not contacted me about this book or found ways of referencing this book when nobody said anything about it. And I think I even knew about this book before you all did because I had audio for this and then I didn't play it. Had audio for this previously and I didn't play it. Then more people commented and commented. I had audio again this week. I just said she's doing the book tour. She sees on lots of book circuits and I didn't play any of it. Now I got the book and I looked at some of her other audio. I think I said before we're built different. Definitely after 15 years. So I looked at some of her other work. The book title again, Legacy, a black physician reckons with racism in medicine. One thing I have said for 15 years, even that as a title. Hmm. Racism is current. When they use terms like vestiges of slavery, legacy, it makes it seem as though white supremacy racism is something that was done back then and is not a current active system that is being refined and maintained. Frameworks are important. Definition of racism is important. I'm just going to go really quickly. I might even have to do a review of all this. And I will say I've had people say over the 15 years, Gus doesn't like books written by black people. Fuller does encourage us to watch that word like. I strongly submit again after 15 years, I think I've told people a lot of books that I love medical apartheid, a terrible thing to waste the man, not Delectable Negro, the ISIS papers. I'll stop there. All of those are written by black people. I mention them all the time. Dorothy Roberts, many others. There are lots of books written by black people that I think are great and constructive. However, most non-white people are confused about white supremacy racism, Gusty included. Therefore, most non-white people are not going to be able to write an accurate constructive book about racism because we're confused you should know this if you've been listening to the cows I can go easy I'm not saying anything very deep 
controversial, whatever that means. When I ask these non-white guests, it's almost unanimous. Do you have a definition for racism? And they almost all of them either say no or they talk and give an extemporaneous explanation. Victims guaranteed qualified, but I mean, really, you don't even have a framework for what you're talking about when you say racism from which everything else can emanate and make sense because it's grounded in logic. When that's not even present, why would I think you're going to give me accurate information on racism? In fact, again, we wouldn't be victims of white supremacy if we had collected centuries of accurate, constructive books, literature, counter-racist logic. We wouldn't be in this situation. Just trying to follow logic. Back to legacy. Now, with this here book specific and victims guaranteed qualified, I probably wouldn't be saying any of this if so many of you all had not commented, mentioned this book. And again, most of you never comment or mention a book to me at all. The book starts to my mother, my first love and the original, that word love, the original Dr. Blackenstock, second generation physician whose warmth, affection and love continue to guide me through my life. No problem giving an acknowledgement to her black mother, physician, inspiration. No problem with that at all. But dang, does she have a black father? You can't get shout out love nothing never mind okay so we go to the comments or excuse me i'm gonna just get through the table of contents quickly might inspire you all to read the original dr blackenstock that's her mom something wrong everything we lost all the things they didn't teach me misdiagnosed part two opening my eyes homecoming three patients a tale of two emergency rooms we just talked about that motherhood fatherhood whoops 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 Chapter 9 is motherhood. Chapter 10 is not fatherhood. What? What? They don't do black dads? Never mind. Sorry. sorry. Uh, Chapter 10, diversity and exclusion. Chapter 11, truth to power. Chapter 12, all the patients look like us. 13, where I'm supposed to be, a better way. The way forward actions speak louder than words. And that is the whole book wrapped up. It's not even very long. Now, I did read quite a bit of this book. In fact, I can use the line that I hear many of these hosts use frequently. Now, I didn't read every page. That is true. But I did end up reading a lot of this book accidentally. I even had other books that I wanted to read. This was not on my book list at all. But I'm so glad I did at least look. So I look And I noted immediately, oh, she's got a big picture of her mom and she's got her natural hair, not chemically mutilated, outstanding. Doesn't that remind you of Dr. Welsing, third generation physician, medical doctor? Wow. But I noted as I was flipping through the book, picture of mom, another picture of mom. Where is dad? Dang. In fact, are there any pictures of black dudes in the book at all? No. <sighs> then I started paying attention because she had to mention old George Floyd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Old Eric Garner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
en route as she's going through, oh, I passed more pictures, black mom, that's crazy, her sister, or that's great, her sister, that's great, that's great, okay. Uh, as we're rolling through, she starts off in the introduction. She lets us know, uh, did I lose my highlights? Did it take the highlights? Oh, that's half. Let's see. Yep, stole my highlights. That is crazy. I don't even know how that happened. I have to do it, uh, wing it here. So, losing the highlights, she starts off telling us that, bang, from the introduction, currently black men have the shortest life expectancy of any demographic group. Black babies have the highest infant mortality rate. These horrifying trends were all true even before the pandemic was permitted to devastate our communities, brutally disabling, disabling and ending lives and exposing the deep racist fault lines in our society. Metaphor. Skipping back a couple of paragraphs, the bad news is that there aren't enough of us. Although I was fortunate to grow up with a black physician mother, it's important to understand that our mother was a rarity as are my sister and I. The number of black physicians in this country remains stubbornly low with only 5.4% of all U.S. physicians identifying as black, 2.6% as black men, 2.8% as black women. Although black people make up 13% of the population, there is actually a smaller percentage of black male physicians now than there was in 1940 when the black men made up 2.7% of black physicians. None of that is news to me. And in fact, they have specific articles that are within the last few years to talk about how the number of black male physicians has actually dropped over the last mm, 25, 40 years or so, that it's actually gone down. At minimum, stayed about the same, if not gone down, whereas it's gone up for black females. That's in the introduction. She goes on to talk about the influence of her uh, Dr. Blackenstock, her black mother, the racism that her mother experienced, uh, difficulties in her black mom and dad getting a house uh, in the U.S. because of racism. Uh, she talks about racism in healthcare. She talks about COVID-19. Interestingly, at least I thought she talks about COVID-19, but there is no discussion of what I have termed white defiance, meaning white people saying, hey, this COVID thing is a nigger disease, just like syphilis. I'm not putting on no mask. I'm not doing no vaccine. You're not telling me to distance. Matter of fact, bar lives matter. Going to get a margarita. That was in the Washington Post. They have lots of established reports talking about this exactly that is not touched on at all unless I missed it again now I didn't get to read every page but I don't you know, I looked at that COVID chapter pretty I don't I don't think I missed that now uh, she gets to the end of the book and she comes back to the lack of black male physicians but there's no real engagement around why that is what the problem is, what should be done about that, can we do anything to switch up the pipeline, to get Leroy out of prison, and to get them into med school, none of that is addressed I have no problem, and hey we have talked about how racism impacts black mothers 
We had Andrew Freeman on the program. We talked about breastfeeding and the racist scheme to get black mothers to not breastfeed. We had uh, Shafia Monroe when she was president of the International Center for Traditional Childbearing. All of that is super important, but dang, black males are totally ignored. In fact, there are no live black males mentioned in this book, excluding the acknowledgments. There are no live black males mentioned in this text other than Dr. Clyde Dillard, Earl Blackstock, which is her father, Dr. Alvin Poussant, who helped put the Cosby show together, maybe regrettably now, uh, and her husband, former husband, Chris. The only reason these people are mentioned, really, is because they are proxies for her mom and or she, other than her dad. But the only real reason that these people are mentioned is because they are proxies to black females that she really wants to focus on and talk about. There really is no focus on this is a live black male and their experience, like I said, other than her dad. And I'm going to read two chunks that I thought were important. I probably lost the highlights there too, but I'm going to read two. I'm going to go out of order slightly. I'm going to skip all the way to the acknowledgements. Okay. To my father, Daddy, I remember visiting Clarendon, Jamaica, as a little girl with you and being shocked to see where you grew up. Thank you for making sure we lived in our own beautiful home, that we went to schools where we would thrive and for always waiting for us late at night as kids to pick us up from mom, pick us up from parties so that we were safe. I hope we have a chance in this lifetime or maybe the next to understand each other a little more. I do love you very much, Daddy, and I'm glad that you and Shirley can spend good times together in your remaining years. Now, pause there great for a shout out that's awesome it did give me pause like I don't know what their understanding is and certainly nobody can claim to have great understanding in the system of white supremacy racism she does talk about her father uh, Earl Blackstock as being kind of early on kind of a handy person a ha- what they would call a handyman you just go around and fix things you can repair cars and different things work on houses and all of that all of that is super needed not to be devalued at all he's not a doctor she is a doctor her mother is a doctor it might be reasonable to conclude that probably all of the black females in that house have way more education than the black males like way that might be a source of the misunderstanding white supremacy racism to blame for the misunderstanding and the lack of education for that black male but I mean wow (laughs) wow and then then, wait a minute that's privileged black male Earl Blackstock the least educated of everyone in the house but he's privileged the last section from legacy that I shall read This is from chapter 16, excuse me, from the epilogue, end of the book. She says, am I satisfied I went into medicine? My mother asks in the essay, were the different pressures on me as a minority woman in medicine? 
Would I do things differently if I had to do things over today? Those are the same questions I asked myself before I left NYU. Did I even want to stay in, an ac in academic medicine? Would I be able to reach my fullest potential in a conservative, predominantly white environment? Did I need to think differently about my life and career and about what success looks like? As a younger woman, I didn't internalize what she was saying, but reading her essay 30 years later, her words could almost be mine. These days, I even wonder if I would want my children to pursue careers in medicine. As I write this, they are six and eight years old, still young and innocent. When I think about the stress and trauma of racism they would experience as black men entering the medical realm, my answer would be no. I want to protect them. I worry that a career in medicine would be like throwing them to the wolves. I don't have the same drive for traditional notions of success that our mother had for Oni and me. As someone who was born into poverty, our mother wanted and needed something very different for her daughters. My children have had the kind of privileged life every black child deserves, but I would prefer for them to consider all the possibilities for how they might live full and fulfilling lives. My children deserve that. You have full context for where that came from, but it did give me pause. Dang. Is it just because they were black? Like you say this, even if you had black female children? Or is it because they're black males, you would not want to put them in that environment? It gave me great pause. I, particularly given there are a lack of black male doctors, she already said that at the beginning of the book, and that's, well, I don't know if it's widely known, but they do have many reports where they talk about that. There are a lack of black male doctors, so it gave me great pause. I don't know. At any rate, uh, I was not impressed with what was there and it really bothered me because if if she in fact I'll tell it this way if this had been presented as I am talking about my black female experience black females experience with racism in medicine I would have had less of a problem but that's not how this is presented that's not how it's presented on democracy now PBS that's not even the title of the book if this is going to be talked about as racism in health Racism impacts black females, black men. I mean, dang, the black people with the lowest life expectancy. We can't even get a chapter in the book. I'm not saying we got to get the whole book, but a chapter. It's a chapter on motherhood. We we can't even get maybe. Can we get a page on black fatherhood? That's no, no. I'm pointing this out because this sort of deliberate exclusion, in fact, Dr. Curry talked about this. The only way black males can be studied, discussed and understood is once you are safely six feet in the ground. I just told you the only live black dudes that are talked about in this book, her dad, who she doesn't understand, her divorced husband. And then these people who helped her mom or her in their careers. There are no live black scholars and all that live black people. No, I didn't read every page, but I did kind of look on that one. There are lots of black females throughout the book that are still alive and writing and talking to her and all that. Black males? And that stamp, don't I talk about that for workplace racism 
all the time. Someone had the audacity to say, Gus, I'm so glad the cows focuses on black males. We do not. We just talk about this on a consistent basis. We've had lots of programs where we talked about black female issues. They don't do that. Particularly mainstream platforms, they exclude black males unless it's time to talk about who the police strangled, choked, raped, sodomized. If it's not that, matter of fact, again, black male privilege. So how many of you all, you heard Kaushin Gelzer? You knew that name? I mean, a black dude gets his head stuffed in the freezer. You should know that we all watch Jeffrey Dahmer all over the world. So a head in the freezer, everybody should know about that, right? I can tell you my own study, I had more people, and they happened at about the same, like literally, the arrest for Kaushin Gelzer, his head being in the freezer, and the publication of the book Legacy, they happened at about the same time. I think if you get decapitated and they stuff your head in a freezer, that's certainly a health risk, right? I had more people contact me, email social media about the book Legacy, than I did about Mr. Gelzer's head being in the freezer. Black male privilege it must be really important to the system of white supremacy because there's so many books and things that come out and particularly at the academy and what have you that must be a big part of it make sure you don't have too much to say about those no count raping black males leave them out completely has to be that's all I can conclude maybe we can get a sentence in there about their low life expectancy but we're not going to spend too much time on that Maybe we can get a sentence in there about it's not too many black male doctors, but we're going to spend any time on that. Got other things to talk about. Anywho, uh, and particularly for today, I'm so glad I was able to mention all of this today. The audio clips that we heard that right there was an ode to black male privilege from beginning to end. Oh my God, we got to go and overturn Marcus Wiley's on death row in Missouri and Mike Brown laid out in the street in Missouri for four hours and we're going to do some changes and then nope. And then they got this long list of dead black males and oh, we didn't investigate this one right. And Kajime Powell and it's like, oh yeah, I remember that one. I remember that one. I remember that one. Long list. I didn't even remember the black male's name because I had the computer problems when they got to the black male that the dog chomped on him. They chomped us on the black male privilege. That's what I mean. Like this is the everyday experience. Every report that you heard was the last seven days. How is it that is the daily lived experience of white supremacy racism? I write a book about racism and health and we give two sentences to talking about black males. We don't even have a chapter on black fatherhood. That's what I mean. How am I to understand all of this, all of this with what you just heard? Even the segment when they go to talk about black male that gets chomped on by the dog you don't think he's going to make it they got to amputate his arm Dorothy Roberts talked about that she said that is the one service I found where black people get disproportionate they get the service it's not the other way around 
disproportionately black people they get amputations anyway when they talked about all that they said man oh it was the cigarettes that's what it was the menthol cigarettes where they said it's black males who are most likely to get lung cancer black male privilege black male privilege we didn't get a chapter in the book on health and racism about that COVID-19 respiratory nope 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 Anyway, when they're talking about why we can't get the menthol cigarettes banned, you know, it's that no count Al Sharpton. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. It's almost 2025. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we cannot, we cannot go into 2025 blaming things that are wrong on the plantation on Al Sharpton. Are you serious? We can't even find his grandchildren. It's got it. Doesn't he have grandchildren at this point? We can blame it on them. They running around here and messing up things and causing. No, no, no. It's a oh, how Sharpton. Now, we have talked about that repeatedly. Matter of fact, that's with us in racism and health. You can go all the way back to 09. Vernelia Randall, the book Dying While Black. She talks about racism and health correctly. She has a whole chapter talking about racism and cigarettes she does mention black people black politicians Al Sharpton who've got lots of money to help support no bans on menthol cigarettes but I don't think Al Sharpton and and I don't remember Vernelia Randall telling us that these black people are the reasons we can't get these menthol cigarettes away from black people I don't remember that's what what she said in fact we talked about this again Dr. Valerie Yerger, she researches this specifically. She came back and talked with us 2016 or 15, sorry, 2015. We talked about this specifically. I don't remember her telling us either that no count Al Sharpton. We just get rid of Al Sharpton. We get rid of that. That's not what she said. Al Sharpton is not in charge of menthol cigarettes. Get out of here. And then, and then you see what they did. You see what they did. They get a black person to come and say, "Ooh, that old Al Sharpton. Ooh, that old Al Sharpton." And get the sound clip of him in there. He said what he said. I certainly don't support that. But I mean, are you serious? Are you are you telling me that the most powerful white people, if they wanted to ban cigarettes, Joe Biden or whomever else, if they wanted to go ahead and ban the cigarettes, they'd oh man, colored children, I, I sure would get this done. But that. That no count rascal Al Sharpton. He just he just messes up everything. Man, can we? Is anybody anybody do something about Al Sharpton? We're gonna get to Diddy next, but can we do something about Al Sharpton? Shout to Tawana Brawley. The number 605-313-5164. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Shout to the late Alton Maddox as well. Blackmail privilege. Blackmail privilege. Six oh five three one three five one six four. The code five six four. Nine four three pound press star six one if 
you would like to participate. I did deliberately include that segment on subs or excuse me, the increase in syphilis. I did think that was very important. I think we do have parents who listen to the program and such young people participated not that long ago. That would for sure, for sure be something to discuss. Did you read this? Maybe you need to write a report about this. Let's talk about this. 80% what they say, what they say, they said substance abuse increases the risky sexual behavior. That's another duh. But if you have children, offspring, oh yeah, make sure you discuss that. You don't want to have syphilis, do you? Folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. I am happy to uh, announce that uh, the DCS mentoring program have started up again. Uh, we had a uh, meeting with the parents uh, to discuss the program how long it lasts, uh, some of the requirements or suggestions that they can do in order to uh, help the program run smooth and uh, affect their male children in the maximum way. Uh, it went pretty good, and uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, – the sessions, uh, we would start effectively with the young fellows next Saturday. Uh, one of the things that I uh, got with Mr. Clark on was reading something that uh, you rightfully uh, talk about because it's vitally essential. Uh, a lot of our, uh, boys, uh, have problems with reading and es especially the younger ones. And, uh, so, uh, we have, we do have a, uh, a teacher that is working with us now and for at least an hour, uh, maybe two hours. We're going to have him to work with those who uh, basically uh, who have uh, a problematic anyway with their reading skills uh, to improve them as best we can on those Saturdays. Uh, last but not least, uh, the uh, head of the Broward Sheriff's Department, Broward County, just next to me, a few, well, maybe about a mile and a half away from me, uh, Mr. Gregory Tony. Uh, he is being, uh, chastised. Uh, he has a lot, he has a lot of, uh, responsibilities. Uh, not only 
the normal law enforcement uh, that I guess most of us know on a general stage. He also is in charge of the uh, penal system in Broward County. And the latest news on him is focusing on there's been a lot of suspicious death that's been taking place in the prison system that he is in charge of. Uh, and it's not only black males, there's also some, some white males that have been dying. And so far, uh, he has not uh, responded directly in the press. Now, I did a little bit of research and found out that he, this problem is not new, but because uh, I think something like this has taken place maybe two or three years ago, uh, but uh, where uh, it was being said that uh, the penal system is using the prison system as a mental health facility. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a, uh, very, uh, vast number of people who are incarcerated that has their problems actually is severe mental issues as based with the article is talking about. Uh, but, uh, I would stay tuned to more. Uh, that's, like I said, that's been making the news you know, like the first 15 minutes for about the past week uh, down here involving uh, Mr. Tony uh, being he's the head of the uh, penal system in Broward County also. And that's my report for this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Mm, much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. That's almost, you can add that to my list of the logic people being abused in the penal system hmm hmm I'm gonna say it's been known to happen once or twice uh I don't know <laughs> Mr. Fuller likes Shawshank Redemption right Cool Hand Luke they got a lot of those prison flicks so yeah I would not be surprised if there's been all kinds of abuse uh, and certainly they have all kinds of films and documentaries talking about the mental health issues and how lots of people end up in greater confinement on those spaces so that would not be surprising at all even in Ron DeSantis land uh, and all of that is probably also connected to reading love that if they're going to restart the uh, DCS program Mr. Clark and the other uh, victims of racism, retired firefighter included, helping out the victim, young children, little black boys and such uh, in the program. Bravo. Uh, hey, even uh, reading about things that are happening locally. That would be amazing. It, I mean, if you all are, are, can read a book and discuss, that would be great. But I mean, hey, you could start small. And when I say small, you could start with just articles and things, you know, that are in the newspaper, almost similar to what we do with the audio reports. Have them, you could print it out like Dr. Welsing would do at the Welsing Center, print out an article that's talking about uh, climate change in the area that we talked about a few days back. Print out some of those articles and have them read. Do you recognize some of these areas? Do you all live in some of these areas? And talk about that or some of the other things that are happening, just local 
news and information about things that are happening right in the it, some of the information on CTE I'm sure some of them they play football or they know uh, they follow the Miami Dolphins or some of the other players on that team they could be talking about that or it's so many things but yeah uh, reading so important uh, so many black children are in that same group where they have some difficulties with their reading comprehension and need some folks willing to put that labor in to help that is so important moving forward in life reading is more important than watching television other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary proceed Lauren yes ma'am just letting our well hmm person that's on the Skype line if you are controlling your mute you should be good but I did try to open your line so I'm going to assume that you will take care of it yourself if not we'll figure it out thanks for your patience Lauren yes ma'am um, yes sir evening everyone thank you for allowing me to speak um, the name you asked about earlier I was not familiar with that name and I also was not familiar with that book um, I hadn't even heard of it. So, um, about the segments that you played, um, you know, a couple of them, the one with Mark Zuckerberg, the, the social media people testifying, um, for Congress, it said there was like a rise in reports of explicit images of children. And someone was, it sounded like a white man. He said, I know you don't mean for it to be so, but you have a product that's killing people and the dark side needs to be dealt with. Well, um, the dark side, that was um, interesting. And also, how does he know what Mark Zuckerberg um, means to happen? That was interesting. And then when they asked uh, Mark Zuckerberg about the percentage of children getting sex-type messages, he said he didn't want to answer that. So... Let's see. Um, the menthol cigarette segment. Um, I had a, you know a couple of notes. It said black people smoke menthol today. Over eighty-five um, percent of black adults who smoke cigarettes smoke menthol. That is a really high number. And I also noted they were talking about black leaders, and they <laughs> they brought up Al Sharpton. Um, let me see. The, the water bills in Jackson, Mississippi, um, you know, this black male, you know, he has a water bill for his office. He washes hands, flushes toilets, but he doesn't take showers, wash clothes, you know, do these types of things. And he got a $160 white bill, you know, so he calls to talk to him about it, had, you know, asked them to come read the meter. They haven't been out there in so long to read the meter. They didn't even know where it was. And when they did read it, he was like, hmm, you know, y'all have been overcharging me for quite some time. I mean, you know it had to be bad for them to actually give him back more than $3,000. And it just made me, I bet you that is a very widespread issue. Um, uh, St. Louis, um, the, the black male who was shot, you know, after he says, if you don't make it out of St. Louis by this summer, you're going to die here for real. The 
really sad. And I also noticed a lot of, this is not unusual, but a lot of prayers from the black people this week. That's, that's pretty common. Um, but his, um, attempted black mother was praying and, you know, one son gets shot. And when the police get there, they take the other two. Well, I think they took the other two sons to jail. Maybe it was just one. Um, and then, you know, they're laughing. It's just that whole thing. It's terrible. Um, let me see. The councilman, um, the one who was in the, um, what they call them? Um, I, I'm sorry, the, the, the five males. Thank you, the Central Park Five. Um, so the police pull him over, law enforcement pulls him over, and um, he, he said he asked why he was pulled over, but when they played the tape, it didn't, you know, show that, um, that he asked why he was pulled over. And the news made sure to say, um, that, you know, just that small inconsistency, like he, like that was very incorrect on his part. He said the council member owed the police an apology. Like, what? He should apologize for being pulled over. That is, um, ridiculous. I, mm, Albano Affairs, I, I actually, I took a lot of notes on that one. I had already heard that segment, but it was just so interesting, especially the white man who said, you know, you know what uh, ravens are supposed to look like. So when you see this white raven with this genetic difference, it just kind of stops you. That right there, he said, this raven seems, well, I don't know if he said it, but someone said the raven seemed more like an alpha. Um, and it was in a spat with four black ravens over some white chocolate raspberry ice cream. Wow. Um, so the white raven was not dominant. I mean, was not, uh, subordinate. They wanted us to know that. Um, that white man took over 10,000 pictures of this white bird. He was so happy. The bird got so close to him that he, you know, he could see a reflection of himself and that bird's blue eye. Oh man. It was just, it was so many things in the stories, the stories from the, um, native, you know, like the being black is just a punishment. You know, you turn from white to black after displeasing a god or after you try to steal a bucket and put black in your feathers. It's just you're a thief and you're just a Negro because you don't know how to act. And um, that, that's, that's all I have. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Woo. Man, mm, mm, mm. I think it's uh, a conspiracy of ravens. I bet you if ravens were white, they would not be called a conspiracy. Uh, they would have a better. Yep, it's a conspiracy of ravens and a murder of. <laughs> they would have a better name. <laughs> I don't know, like angels or I don't know. They would have something something godly and spiritual <laughs> what in the world thank you Dr. Welsing anybody who if you are listening I had thought of that so if you had to explain to someone what the world WTH uh, what does a pale raven 
or a pale rodent. What does that have to do with racism? All the things that happen in the world, why are you all wasting time on a regular basis to scrutinize or focus on, you know, a segment on an albino rodent? How would you all explain, or maybe if you don't think it's relevant, you can share that too, but how would you articulate that to a non-white person? How, why that relates to white supremacy racism, why that is even important, noteworthy. What would you say? Think on that one. I've been. Um, oh, oh she I was going to answer. <laughs> Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Well, I just think it's important because obviously white people think that uh, people with different racial classifications should be treated differently. Um, you know, white people should uh, have the le- least amount of mistreatment and the darker you are, the more mistreatment you're subject to. So I think it is fascinating to see how they also do that with animals because they look at these albino animals, these white animals, like um, they look at themselves in a way. So the way they think white animals should be treated is the way they think white people should be treated. And that is, well. Hmm. Okay. Have to have to process any anybody else if they you know we've had a number of segments on albino affairs that might be one of the bonuses this week because they might have a segment on albinism at UW which I thought was noteworthy because they're doing this segment in the middle of Black History Month so anyway I plan to be there front and center and see if I have a question but uh, that days from now albinism uh, incidentally about the billing in Jackson, Mississippi, which is a significant town for many reasons related to racism, white supremacy. They ran a tank over the black people in Jackson twice in recent memory, got photos of it and everything. With the inaccurate billing, part of the problem that they had said was that the pipes were leaking, not just poisonous, but leaking. And so they weren't able to generate enough pressure sometimes to flush and all the rest of it to get water near where it needed to go and that was also generating exorbitant bills because the pipes were leaking so people weren't necessarily using water but it was just gushing 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 and all that they're supposed to do the repairs and all that but that is the second time in 24 hours that I've heard about inaccurate billing for black people where they can't even really give you an accurate tally on exactly what it is you owe this was I just literally heard this yesterday within the context of debt and the deliberate racism within debt collections in the U.S. It's all areas of people activity. I guess that'd be economics if you want to talk about it. But they were talking about debt collection specifically, and they were saying this is a major department store was in a consent decree. I was stunned because I've only heard consent decree in the context of police where there's some sort of allegation of wrongdoing and we're not going to resist and, you know, go ahead and comply with whatever plan to improve. That's the only context that I've heard this, but they were talking about a major department store. You have to forgive me because I was what they call multitasking. I just don't recall the exact name of the major department store, but they were saying that it was the same thing. They could not provide accurate billing of exactly how much, do these people owe that you're trying to take through collections? And so they had to stop doing it because they could not provide evidence of your trying and the racism, of course, that the people who were most likely to be pursued 
Al Sharpton can't do nothing about that, I guess. Anyway, uh, but they said because this was such a pattern of them coming to court and them saying, where's the evidence? You're going to charge Leroy and blah, blah, blah. How much does he owe? Consent decree. You can't even, we're not even doing this anymore. I'd never even heard that before. And, and, and it was a white person who was giving out this information. Who's more informed about racism. Other folks who dialed in, if we've missed you totally, again, I think we have someone might be on the vote Skype line. I guess if you have your mute, feel free. Other folks who dialed in, if we missed you totally. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, 9029. Uh, greetings, guests, callers, uh, listeners. Um, first off, we we'll just start off with uh, something that happened in uh, New York with this uh, Community Education Council for uh, a District 14. They are uh, a group of people that are pro-ceasefire, um, and they release a statement in regards to Palestine, a pro-ceasefire. Um, afterwards, they received harassment. Obviously, this group, if you see images of them online, they are predominantly non-white. Um, they received harassment after that emails, phone calls, death threats. And the last thing they received this week was a box sent to one of the main volunteers with human feces in it. And then um, they're looking for the Department of Education to stand up and actually give them support. But the department is not even doing that. They're stepping back and chastising them because they held a meeting on a Friday, which is the quote-unquote Sabbath of people that classify themselves as Jewish. They gave prompt and told them that this was the only time that was free. They couldn't make it, so this is the end result. Um, and that's one thing. Um, um, also, in regards to the, the name of the gentleman with, that was beheaded, I, I did hear about that as well. That, that took place literally 15 minutes away from me. Um, here, in, here in New York. Also, the uh, the commentary going to segments about Elon Musk, I think that Neuralink should be monitored. I think we should pay close attention to that to see exactly what happens. Elon Musk and many of him alike are not really too keen to people that are non-white. So I think their technology will obviously be geared towards the benefit of them, and that's all. Um I appreciate the segment on the white Angelicus, Evangelicus. I really uh, I need to find some more information. I believe the person that was speaking in that segment wrote a book, and I need to do a little bit more research about that because I believe that li- that history goes back to, quote-unquote, so-called settlement days or colonial, first colonial days of the so-called Americas. I'm interested in that topic specifically and to see how it carries on until um, this day is, is really interesting coming, especially from the manga and the support and everything that took place in January 6th. Um, something that I did do this weekend, um, sorry, this week was I had to uh, uh, the library in regards to uh, a, an actual event of a book, a book, you know, a book being brought out, which by Adam Schatz. This book was a book by, in regards to France Fanon. The book is called The Rebels Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Frantz Fanon. Um, this is written by a white man, obviously for the name. Um, 
I stood there for the whole event. Uh, I asked two questions. And when I tell you this guy dodged them like he was, let's just say he sidestepped them consistently. Um, when I asked him, what do you think about Frantz Fanon and the fact that he was mainly with white women during most of his life? And to be honest, I think the only women he married were white women and how it may have affected his writing and his work and his perception as far as racism. He dodged it completely. I mean, he just kept on throwing words out, words out. And after a while, I was like, all right, forget it, dude. Um, the next thing I asked him was, why did you write the book? Which to some degree, I, I, I kind of understood it because he said he wanted to make Franz Fanon's work a little bit more palatable for people who can't or don't have the time to really deep dive into things like black skin, white mask and the wretched of the earth where the writing is not easy to read. It's very, and he's using like theories and phrases that are, are sometimes a little bit confusing. Um, so I, I kind of understood that if he was really trying to do that for his re for the writing of the book, I think he did a good job as far as that goes. But the other aspect of that event was I ran into two non-white females and they began to speak to me about racism. And they, the first thing they said to me was, and this is books again, you need to read Elizabeth Wilkerson. I said, oh, yeah, sure. I'll want from the sun. They go, no, you need to read Cast. And I said, why? And they said, oh, well, you, you need to read it. And I said, well, to be honest with you, every person that I know that has read Cast has a perception of racism that, and this is one of my codes, if I had to tell my offspring, my two children to say, hey, go to this person, they'll give you more information about racism, I would not send my children to listen to them in regards to their perspective based on what they learned from Elizabeth Wilkinson's um, cast. And while we were speaking, this was, this was the part that was really interesting, the white people that were in the audience just completely leaned over and was listening to our conversation. And I was trying to keep my tone down, but the sisters, the other non-white females were talking a little louder. And as soon as I shot down cast, you could see their faces just drop and go, oh, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like cast. He doesn't like Elizabeth. And I said, well, you should probably check out the man, not maybe check out Tommy, Dr. Tommy J. Curry's work maybe some Amos Wilson work and stuff like that. I, I, I really think you may want to find some more information by checking out those books. And when I said those names in the books, it completely passed over their head. So then I went to Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, and then they nodded their head in agreement and said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't think they really studied her work, you know. And the white woman got up, that was the closest one that was listening to our conversation, walked by, and turned, didn't say a word to me, nothing, even though she was in our conversation, disrespectfully to me, and turned to the non-white female and said, yeah, asked, I got to tell you, Elizabeth Wilkinson, you got to, and again, that's another one of my codes. Anything white people like, I am very, very skeptical of it. And I think everybody that's non-white should be because anything they like is normally good for them. So I shrugged my shoulder to it, but it was something that I, I had, to, had to bring out and notice. Um, the last thing I'll say is the segment about the White Raven, 
perfect. I think that segment overall describes so much about racism, white supremacy, and the dynamics of it. Um, the last caller touched on it completely, and I, I think it's, I don't know where you got that segment from, but that was a good one. That was a good one, Gus. Um, that being said, I will mute my line. Thank you. Harold Phillips, privileged black male who the dog chomped his arm off. Harold Phillips. Much obliged, dear sir. That is so fascinating. I have observed that many times if you're out in public, black female caller in Georgia. Oh, your line is open. Okay, it's open now. Right on. Um, But I've seen that many times. If you're out in public, you're non-white. And you are talking serious about racism. You're not in there talking about, when is the next Beyonce concert? You've been listening to Drake and blah, blah, blah. What you think about the Lakers and who's going to win the Super Bowl? You're not talking about some nonsense. You are talking serious. You're talking about white supremacy. He said they leaned in. Shut the phone off. Shut everything. What? I have seen that even before the cows began. I noted that as soon as I started seriously studying racism, started saying white supremacy system, I would be out. We were literally out in public. Three, four of us, non-white people talking about racism. A white man walked by, heard us. He came over he stood so close to us, I assumed, because there were, you know, three, four other people in the group, I assumed he was friends with one of them, so I didn't really, you know, I was just like, oh, that must be, you know, he's with one of them. After he stood there about four or five minutes, I think finally someone was like, who are you? He said, oh, it just, it sounded so interesting what you were talking about. I was shocked, like, what the hell? Like, you have been ear hustling on us for like a good five minutes. It was just like, oh, yeah, it was just, is that? Then, I think from that moment forward, I started noting that. White people are not it. They pay attention immediately. They see their little boys and gals are trying to be serious, talking like they want to be men, women, sit at the adult people's table, talk about adult things in an adult manner. Seriously. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Cased. I don't know if you all know or not, but hey, it's TV related. They are turning cased into a movie pulling out the heavyweights old Ava DuVernay remember since we mentioned Central Park 5 remember she made the adaptation to Central Park 5 and got all that anti-sex into it what does that have to do with these privileged black boys black and non-white non-black boys being falsely accused falsely convicted caged what does that have to do I didn't watch that one anyway, but they got Ava DuVernay to, I guess, what would transmogrify cased from literature form to whatever it's going to be on the screen or Netflix or streaming or whatever. But that's coming out. So I, I suspect, give me one second. I suspect that's how a lot of people are informed 
about case if they didn't already know but lots of people already knew about it it was won all these awards and oprah winfrey bragged about it and all there in 2020 and everything else we read that that i said that used to be the la- matter of fact he mentioned two he mentioned two france Fanon, wretched of the word that's why i said man we have i have facilitated a book club for over a decade we read france Fanon, wretched of the earth now i even want to pause right there I said, that's the worst book I'd ever read at the time. I didn't say it's confusing. I said, it's incoherent. He wrote that book, Fanon, Victim of White Supremacy, Doctor Medical. He wrote that book on his deathbed, originally in French. It had to be written down by his white wife. He was dying, so he's articulating she's transcribing it and then it has to be translated from France from French to English so that's one and all of that the incoherence now you take that jumble of confusion and you get a different white person who says well I'm gonna reinterpret this for you all who don't have the time and to dig into what was originally said now I got two white people who've come to reinterpret all this and give it to me again. Wow. That's just what I needed. Thank you so much. That will, this is really going to lead us to liberation. And then you come back with case. Uh Oh, you see the pattern. We brought that up. Isabel Wilkerson married to a white man. And you don't have to be no uh, coon and trying to talk bad about her because she makes that explicit in Cased. Her white husband is in the acknowledgments. Worst book. I, that's both of them. Neither are there now, but both of them formerly worst books I have ever read about racism. That's what I said. That's what I expect. That's why I'm never excited when someone says, oh, a black person wrote a book about racism. I'm like, uh oh. This could be another wretched of the earth. Uh oh. This could be another case. Then I mean, hey, I said warmth of other suns is in my top ten. We read that too. He said, Oh, you mean warmth of other suns? Oh, isn't that amazing? And it is. No. What do you mean? No, that book is amazing. Cased. Even that. That's what I mean about why do you think cased is so great? Hmm. Anyway, uh, you were going to add more, sir. Thank you for your patience. No, no worries. Um, it's funny. You, you kind of said exactly what the lady said. When the white lady passed, the first thing she said was, go watch the movie Origins. They're doing a movie about it. And then walked off. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> and then... Um, the only thing that I will give this quote-unquote white author, Adam Shades, about his interview was the fact that he did speak about the fact that the book, Wretched of the Earth and Frantz Fanon's work, did help some of the Panthers understand that they needed to open up clinics within black neighborhoods to actually help facilitate and get people through the stresses of dealing with racism. That's the only thing he said that I was like, oh, wow, that I didn't know. I honestly didn't know that. 
And outside of that, everything else he said was just, I mean, jargon, just history and lineage that we really don't care about. That said, I'll mute my line. Much obliged. I can even get my flex on that because it it's we've done so much on racism and health that I thought about mentioning this book and I didn't. Now I get to mention it here. We've been on for 15 years. So what have you done in that time? Even that one, I would have yawned. Uh, Alondra Nelson, Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party, and the fight against medical discrimination. It should be racism, but yeah. Alondra, now this is not a bad book, except it, like I said, man, they do say Gusty doesn't like books written by black people. Get out of here, man. <sighs> How many books have you read? Get out of here. Alondra Nelson. She talks about that explicitly and the astronomical amount of constructive work that the Black Panther Party did with regards to health and medicine influenced by people like Franz Fanon. And then how all of that gets conveniently ignored so that all we think about is a beret, a black leather jacket and, you know, fist in the air and all the rest of it off the pig and some rhetoric as opposed to things that had real life. Hey, racism does have enormous devastating health consequences for black people. Let's try to compensate as best we can. Anyway, oh, the book that since we're reading more important than watching television. So Alondra Nelson, that would be one. She was on the cows in 2012. I didn't just mention that randomly. And we talked about all of it. In fact, we talked specifically. They had an ice list. What's the ice list? People that you do not have sexual intercourse with because there's suspicion that they might have an STI like syphilis. This is 60 years ago, Black Panther Party trying to do what they could to minimize STIs amongst black people, like really constructive and recognizing that as a problem. Let's slow up on some of this reckless sexual activity that white people encourage. All of that in body and soul. The other book he asked that was mentioned in that white evangelical Christian segment, uh, the book Preparing for War. The Extremist History of White Christian nationalism and what comes next. Brad Onishi is the author. Book again, Preparing for War The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Incidentally, Dr. Angelin Spaulding Flowers said she's writing a project on a very similar subject matter. She was just with us days ago. Might be a while before that one comes out. Like she said, next year, maybe 2025 or so. But she's writing on the very same subject matter as we speak. Uh, let's see. Other folks, if we missed you totally, you have commentary to share. Uh, black female caller in Georgia. Anybody else? Star 6-1 if you have commentary. Do we nab anybody? Miss anybody? Anybody that we haven't heard from has a hand up?
Maybe we got everybody. Again, we should be here. Let's see. Did we get everybody? Let's see. Looks like, I don't know if that's, if that is black female caller in Georgia. So it looks like your line was muted. Then it was not muted. I did not hear anything. So if you have been talking, we have not heard. But it has looked like on the switchboard, your line was muted. Then it was not muted. Then it muted again. So I'm not sure if you were attempting to talk. We did not hear anything. Uh, if you, I don't know, maybe not in an area to speak or what have you changed your mind, that is fine as well. Uh, let's see. We should be here Monday, as I said early think 11 a.m. because it's a big time difference Mike Swango how did I leave that one out the big one oh that was one that I forgot I said I lost my there is one black male that she mentions in COVID-19 I'm going back to the legacy book now uh, Uche Blackenstock black female victim of white supremacy she mentions this black male who is suspicious about the COVID vaccine and he comes up to her and she's able to uh, allay his concerns and he gets the vaccine, you know, right on for having access to black uh, physicians and such. But that that did make me feel some type of way, forgive the jargon. Uh, but in a book that really doesn't have very many black males, live black males at all to have old Leroy. And I mean, his name, he's just presented as G G E E. It's not like you know, a name, doctor, <laughs> just, so we got old Leroy on the corner here. Like, I'm not really interested in here. When you got all these white people who have ran around talking about, it's no Rona infection and I'm not doing it. And you had all over the world, you had white people doing that out protesting and socking flight attendants in the face and such. And I'm not wearing a mask. You know what I mean? Nah, nah, nah. I don't want to hear nothing about Leroy. And he's a little hesitant. Michael Swango. Michael Swango. I can see why Leroy might. Yeah. <laughs> like, and if you're not going to put that in the total, then yeah. she did mention Tuskegee and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That didn't. I don't. Don't bring me up just as some, you know, poor representation of ignorant black people with unfounded suspicion. Like, man, man. <laughs> black male, another privileged black male, G. Leroy smoothie d money shifty michael brown jr uh anyone else have commentary they want to make sure they get in soon we got everyone the uh that blackmail caller told us about the the bag of feces being left for the students there uh, protesting the situation, so-called Palestine. Uh, man, isn't that bioterrorism? I thought in the era of COVID nineteen, like something like that. That's like major. I mean, they talking about syphilis and everything else. Like, whoa, that isn't that bioterrorism? Like that should be police investigation and the whole nine. Like, what in the world? Come on. Anyway, Harold Phillips, make sure I get the name in. Harold Phillips, privileged black male mauled by dogs in Detroit. And that was another one because so much of the programming that we've done, uh, white dog, 
uh, Romaine Gary, uh, and then Dr. Madeline Wazelchuk. She was with us, white woman, just last uh, summer. Dr. Tyler Perry, not the filmmaker, white man. He was with us a couple summers back during COVID-19. All of that work centers that, hey, these dog attacks are disproportionately targeting black males. Their scholarship pointed that out repeatedly. Sometimes it's bigger black males. Sometimes they're black children, black boys. But either way, it's black males. Even some of the times within the segments, they said that they're training the dog to attack black males. I said, I even brought that up because I was resistant. Like, really? You can train a dog to attack a black male specifically? What? What? And they did say that Harold Phillips, the dog, chomped in the growing area. Of course. That's training. That's not accident. Black male privilege. Uh, Bioterrorism, make sure I got that in. Michael Swango here uh, for Monday. I think we might even have to try out Zoom for Monday only because it is so difficult, at least for me, in getting folks on the continent. I've said this way back from the beginning. It's always way more expensive, and I mean way more expensive to call to the continent. It's more expensive to fly to the continent, everything, dealing with them darkly. You get these nigger ravens. Ugh, ugh, ugh. You don't really want to talk to anybody over there anyway. Ugh. So, uh, the easiest method, it seems, is just to do this via Zoom. Now, you'll still be able to call and all that, but it does just mean that Zoom would be an option. You could call in normal way, or you could listen via Zoom. I'm certainly not turning on my camera. I guess we have a white guest. We could turn their camera on and, you know, see what they look like as we're chatting with them, but I think we will simulcast it just because I have not been able to think of a more efficient method to connect. Uh, obviously, I said phone line and all that and all the rest of me just kept going down and could not figure out an easier, more efficient option. So, that should be the case for Monday, so that'll be lots of reasons for me to grouse and complain. We'll be on early and Zoom and all the rest of it, but either way, Mike Swango. Hopefully, all of that, Mike Swango. Oh, I'm so. Reading is more important than watching television. Michael Swango. I learned so much reading that book. I learned so. And it's global. That's why we're on. That's why I'm having to do Zoom and all of that global. I said then. Man, we have got to hear what exactly was he doing in Africa? How many Negroes did he kill in Africa? How did this get reported in Africa? Remember they talked about, man, remember they talked about all that anti-white prejudice in Zimbabwe. Woo! Grand Sester Robert Mugabe Monday. That's why. That's why. I'm, any of my stress, I just think, oh yeah, that's why we're doing all this anti-white prejudice in Zimbabwe. Woohoo! Monday, Negro History Month. Anti-white prejudice in Zimbabwe. Anti. I hadn't even heard that phrase before. Anti-white prejudice. That's what we're talking about on Monday. Mike Swango and anti-white prejudice 
in Zimbabwe. Oh, I'm so excited. See, I was a little bit bummed. Have to do all that configuring and simulcasting and such, but we will hopefully be able to make it work easily so we can hear about anti-white prejudice in Zimbabwe. Reading is more important than watching television. Absolute for real. I don't want to hear nobody tell me nothing about black people got no concerns about going to the Mike Swango. Mike Swango. Much obliged for folks tuning in, hopefully worthy of your time and energy. Caller in Georgia, just do our diligence. Did we miss you? Were you there? Were you trying to chat? Or the other person, if that's someone else on the vote Skype line. We try. It did see it the on the switchboard, the line unmuted again, which people who dial in they can mute unmute themselves. Uh but it's muted unmuted a few times, but I never heard any audio from the person. So I'll assume they are satisfied, at least for the time being. Much obliged for tuning in. We'll be here Monday uh eleven, I think it is. Eleven AM Pacific, two PM Eastern. Uh, looking forward and then we might even double dip this coming Wednesday for Negro History Month albinism at the UW I'm excited they even have another uh, symposium or whatever that's on racism that I also was really excited about too but once I saw albinism cannot wait alrighty much obliged for folks tuning in hopefully worthy of your Saturday evening sobriety would be best they connected that with all of the extraordinary rise in syphilis sobriety we need non-white people black people with high functioning brain computers doctors counter racist scientists to solve the problem Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring Cow signing out. We do not blame Al Sharpton. The problem is white people. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.